Welcome to Album Divers. This is a podcast created by two music lovers who still remember listening to albums from start to finish the way the artists intended. We give history, track-by-track track analysis, and delve into the music lyrics of some of the best albums of the past and today. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Welcome to Album Divers. I'm Trevor. And I'm Shane. On this podcast, we take turns choosing albums to discuss and review. We alternate between an album that was released this calendar year and one that's been around a while. But today we have something a little different. We are fortunate to have the artist himself here along for our deep dive of his album. Sean, why don't you introduce this album and tell our listeners what we'll be discussing today. Hey, my name's Sean Nelson, uh, and I was the uh, singer and keyboardist and co-songwriter of Harvey Danger. And today we're talking about the third Harvey Danger album, Little by Little, and it came out in 2005, and then it came out again in 2006. Sean, well, thank you so much for joining us. We're really excited to talk about this album. This is one of my favorite albums growing up. Obviously, Harvey Danger is a band that a lot of people know about, but a lot of people know from the first album. But I've just always been partial to this third album, Little by Little. I think it's got an interesting story and change in sound, and it was really excited to talk to you about. Welcome to Album Divers. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here. Sean, I'd love to just kind of talk briefly about, and we really want to talk about this album, but for anybody listening that maybe doesn't know the origins of Harvey Danger and how you guys came together, if you don't mind kind of starting and recapping that a little bit. Um, Yeah, we met at the University of Washington, and we were all, you know, liberal arts students. Jeff and Aaron were a couple years older than me and Evan. They started playing music together because they found themselves in love with music. It was in Seattle in 1991, two, three, like right in there where it really seemed like Seattle was the epicenter of the universe, at least of like youth culture. And, you know, it wasn't that they were trying to keep up or anything. They just found themselves totally immersed in the really exciting time. And they had never played guitar or bass, but they went together on the bus to American music in. Finney Bridge, Roosevelt District. Jeff bought a guitar and Aaron bought a bass and they both bought two little practice amps. And then they rode the bus back to the U District and plugged in their guitar and bass and started learning how to play them by playing together. Late, you know, a, a year or so after that, they didn't have a drummer. 
you know, they had kind of played a couple of makeshift parties, but to call it a band was sort of a, they meant it as a goof sort of, but then they kind of wanted to keep going. And so they invited this guy that they met, Evan, to come and play drums because he said, well, I'd like to learn how to play drums. And, and then he and I were friends and I said, well, you know, I would really, I've always wanted to sing in a band. And he was like, well, you should come. Let me make sure it's okay. And so, you know, we wound up kind of going and the, you know, it seems like the only real criterion for joining that band was that you didn't know how to play many music. <laughs> and then we just kind of kept going. Some of us graduated college, some of us dropped out of college, some of us got jobs, some of us, like, we just kind of did our early 20s together. And we wound up living in the same house, kind of, you know, monkeys style in the U district or moved to a second house altogether. And then it was, you know, it's like four years of that. And the band was the thing that kind of held it all together. We were playing shows as much as we could and kind of practicing whenever we could. But there was no sense that we were moving toward anything because, the, again, there were only like a few hundred people in the world who had ever even been exposed to the name, you know. And, but we started getting better and then we started recording. We thought we'd make a record and we did. And um, we sought out the help of John Goodmanson, who I think of him now as this legendary Northwest music producer. But at the time, he was somewhat under the radar, but we loved his work. And so we sought him out and were, you know, very, like, timid and sort of, uh, you know, I'm so sorry to even ask, but, like, if you would even <laughs> consider listening to this tape, you don't have to. And But he was like, yeah, that sounds great. Let's go. And we made, you know, we wound up making a record out of probably a total of 11 or 12 days of recording that was spread out over a year. And he gave us such a great rate uh the whole thing wound up costing like three thousand dollars and and then it became our first record which you know we then lucked out and this guy who was an intern at a major label also had his own kind of indie label that was you know was very small but he really wanted to put out our record and we were so excited and that was like they pressed 1200 copies of the first record the covers were all on cardboard and silk screens by hand and it was as do it yourself as it could be and then we put it out and it got some good reviews and it got played on some college radio stations and then we thought well, all right well mm -hmm. that was pretty good um but it sort of was like is that really all that happens because we didn't go on tour or anything because we had no money and we had no resources it was a good example of how flawed our thinking was because we were so kind of hermetically sealed as a band we were like well why i mean why do you why go on tour when no one's ever heard of you like it just seemed like a recipe for you know playing to three people in bakersfield and your van breaking down and all that stuff so we decided not to really pursue that way of being a band and we were actually thinking of breaking up because the record had been out for almost well, like eight months or six months or something. It had been out for a while and it did fine, but it was also like, that was that. Yeah. What do you have for us next? And we were not sure we wanted to keep doing it. And there were lots of things because it had been, whatever, four years. It was sort of like college and maybe it's time to move on. But then I had handed the, a copy of the CD to a DJ in Seattle um, and he played the song Flagpole Sitta on his local show on the commercial station. And... Um, 
it just went totally ballistic. People started calling right away, like, what is that song? Oh my, what, you know, and requesting it. And it became, I guess, the most requested song on the station within like a couple of weeks. As a result of that, it got added to the rotation on the station, not just the local show. And as a result of that, a bunch of other radio stations started playing it and putting it in their rotation. Suddenly, it was like this band no one had heard of, with a record that you couldn't find anywhere, that was now like we sold with the initial pressing of the record, sold out. They did another pressing, that sold out. And it was suddenly like, wow, we're, it seems like we have some options. And so we signed up with a major label and went out and toured for many months. And we kind of followed this one very particular route to a certain kind of professional status and we didn't much care for it but it was also like well it beats working and so the record did really well and the single did way better and it seemed like we were a real band to a degree and then we started really focusing our attention on making a second record so that we could capitalize on the momentum of the first one but also the first one was good, but by that time it was like almost three years old. And so we wanted to spread our wings a little creatively and we did. And we, you know, we kind of did the sort of classic trap for young-ish bands on major labels, which is we went and spent a lot of money on the second album. <laughs> we didn't intend to, but that was sort of what wound up happening. And we, you know, we made it in Woodstock or Bearsville, New York at this really deluxe studio that had been built for the band um, to record in. And it was winter time and the snow was like up to our waists and it was desolate and kind of on a wilderness preserve. And we were so isolated. And suddenly it was like, why does this sound like it's made out of rubbing alcohol? And it's so sterile. So we then went back to Seattle and finished that record. And then we were so excited to kind of keep it all going and and then there was behind the scenes at the record label, there was this massive kind of corporate merger where one company took over another company that owned the distribution wing that our label was attached to. And so it wound up being that for, you know, we, we had basically finished the second record, but then we had to wait for over a year, not just before it came out, but before we even knew who owned the contract we had signed only like a year before or two, you know? So it was, it was a truly, truly classic rat fuck, you know, like of epic corporate proportions and which we were a tiny little pellet. And, you know, it was like, well, we're owed all this money and no one even knows who to ask to find out how to get it, you know, stuff like that. And, and the manager was just like, well, I hope you saved some money because it's going to be a while. We kept tinkering with the record and our eagerness to put that album out became sort of almost obsessive within the band. Because now as 
every minute ticks away. You know, the band that had put out the song that was big the previous year is now suddenly, of course, forgotten. Uh, and as time goes by, the momentum that we had was just like, it wasn't only that it didn't help, it was that like it never happened. And, and so by the time the labels got all their sh shit together and we, you know, got the album put out, there was almost no reason to do it because the difference between 1998 when the, when the first Harvey Danger album came out and 2000 when the second one came out, it was the difference between a time when Flagpole Sitta was not all that unusual of a song or a sound to be on the radio and, you know, the time that was ruled by like Limp Bizkit or Britney Spears or whatever. Like I, I just watched that Woodstock 99 documentary on Hulu, which was not a great piece of work, I don't think, but it really did illustrate how different the culture was from how it had been. And so we just didn't, it didn't make any sense to us the way the world was and how yeah. to be a band in that context was just like, we had no idea. We already didn't have any idea when the world was more recognizable. Um, but now it was totally unrecognizable. And so we put out the second record and it just like, it was almost as though it hadn't ever happened. Everything that had gone right for us the first time went wrong for us the second time. And there we were in the world and we had this album we were proud of. It was called King James Version. And it was just as though it hadn't, it just almost didn't exist. So it was then we were like, well, fuck this. We don't want to be part of anything that feels like this ever again. And we decided to kind of take a break and not do Harvey Danger anymore. And then we didn't for uh, like three years. Yeah. And that sort of set the stage for what became the third album, Little by Little. I think I remember reading at one point an interview that you had done. I don't know if you were on tour or somewhere in between the first two records, I think, flipping on the TV and seeing Britney Spears on MTV with Baby One More Time and just kind of going, okay, yeah. we're, we're, we're in a little different space than we were when Flagpole Sitto was all over MTV. Yeah, because, I mean, if those were the terms of being famous and being on, you know, MTV at least, it was clear we just didn't have a prayer, <laughs> you know, because not only was, was the, I mean, there are the obvious kind of superficial elements of what, Britney Spears represented at that time and what she looked like and what she sort of the the cultural conversation that her presence initiated but it was also like that song was amazing like as just as a concoction of elements that was so exactly yeah, so exactly. catchy and so brilliantly executed but also like no humanity in it no sense of you know like no wry subtle commentary on you know <laughs> you know, alternative culture or whatever. It was just sort of, it was for a new generation of people. And right. we weren't part of it. And we were absolutely deer in headlights for most of that whole experience. We, we thought we were sort of uh, humorously aloof, but in fact, we were totally flummoxed and we just didn't have any useful mm -hmm. instincts. Did you recognize Flagpole Sitta as something different when it was being recorded or, or released before it caught fire and everybody was playing it everywhere. Did it feel like something that stood out differently on the album to you? I, it 
it doesn't to me objectively. I, I mm-hmm. think all the songs have their own space, but I don't think I can hear it out of context, you know, because yeah. I'm, I'm the same way as everybody else. I heard Flagpole Sitta, bought the album, and then fell in love with the band as opposed to maybe somebody else that just fell in love with the song. But yeah, did you know when, when you wrote it, there was something different about it in that way or not? Definitely. Um, it felt like a you know breakthrough sort of creatively. We've been really trying to go after that really really narcotically poppy sound like to me this the 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 formula of flagpole though it wasn't we didn't lay out this formula and follow it but as a reflection of the things that we liked and listened to and stuff to me it's sort of like it's like super chunk eric's trip and Mm -hmm. the turtles those are the kind of those are the key ingredients we really liked this uh, eric's trip song viewmaster because it had that very bouncy kind of rhythm and it felt like something that was worth trying to copy i guess but really trying to sort of how do you how do you make that work in in terms of a regular song and then the kind of boisterousness of it reminded us of or you know we always aspired to doing anything that was any that could touch the hem of the super chunk garment you know like in terms of power pop of that time and then and then the turtles with that sort of ba 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 chorus thing because for years for years when we wrote and played that song that was there were no words in the chorus it was just the what is now the backing vocals um Ah, okay and and so, yeah, it definitely felt like, wow, this is a better song than the last few that we had written. And then when we wrote some more songs, we felt like, well, th- those are better than the ones before. It's always that way. Um, but I do remember I had a really, uh, a really acute memory of probably, I don't know, a month or less after we first recorded. I had a cassette. I was sitting in my car, which was a, I had a 1980 Buick Century, but only one stereo channel worked so i think it was only the left hand speaker and anyway i was listening to the tape and it's almost a cliche now but like the car stereo test like if you have a if it sounds good on a crappy stereo it's going to sound good in the world and i listened to it probably 10 times in a row and got so excited and really felt like you know if the world was a totally different place and we had any kind of luck and any kind of access to anything this song could be a hit in the way that like it's the end of the world as we know it and I feel fine was a hit like it's a hit but not like a pop charts hit but you know a song that people knew about and liked and that's that's what I thought and that was probably a full year before anyone heard it and two years before it was successful but I do remember that you know, a really, a really clear memory of feeling that way. And then I felt like, well, maybe we should really stick with this because we're onto something. Going back to the origins, you, you guys all getting together and not really having a lot of experience at that point, And mm-hmm. you saying, I'd love to sing in a band. Did you know you could sing or was that just, let's see if I can figure this out? I mean, I sang in like choir and, um, yeah. and musicals on stage and stuff when I was a, a student in high school. But I really, I mean, I really loved singing. I know I could technically sing, but there's a huge difference between the kind of singing I had done and the kind of singing that I was really enamored of at that time. And I don't know, it's, I've struggled to put it into words before, but I mean, basically the stage musical is, it's the opposite of rock and roll. <laughs> it's, the, it's so not 
rock and roll that it is in fact the negation of rock and roll in some ways. So though there are techniques that are useful that I knew from doing that, it's just like everything that they teach you about how to correctly sing is not only useless, but detrimental if you're trying to sing rock and roll. Basically like I wanted to learn or figure out how to do a scream uh, in singing with a rock band that really that sounded like it had some abandon in it that like that that sounded like the way I felt inside and it was really it was hard to connect those two intentions um, because in a way I had I had some technical skill but I also was just sort of a little you know a little dorky fuss pot in my early 20s and I didn't I just didn't I had no, I didn't have access to whatever that was, and I gained access to it. Like, also, it helped that we didn't have any kind of PA system in our little practice space in Evan's basement. So I had to sing through a guitar amp you know, my mic was just plugged directly into the guitar amp and it was, you know, not, it's not, it was an old, you know, probably 40 watt guitar amp. And obviously it's not going to sound that good, but it also didn't sound that loud. And Jeff, the guitar player played at like stadium volume in the practice <laughs> space. He loved playing really loud and he wouldn't turn down. And so I had to really, really project my voice to be heard. I don't know if it, taught good lessons, but that's kind of how I learned how to do it properly. I, I remember so well, there was the, the first time we ever recorded anything anywhere was at this basement studio that was owned by a friend of ours. Like it was super fun and we were so excited. And then we got the finished results and we're just like, oh God, it sound like that. And I just, I couldn't stand how my voice was. And ever since then, I sort of dedicated myself to getting better at it and uh, I think I did but I know I got better than that I was I loved singing I just loved it and I knew I could at least carry a tune um, but figuring out how to be expressive within that was it was a lot of work yeah and, and I think this album that we're discussing today little by little I think you're a bit more front and center on some of that I feel like the the voice shines I, I like it being part of the mix on the first two for other reasons but I also think that I, I hear a little bit more of you both in the lyrics and also the the way that you project maybe it's a good time to transition into talking a little bit about the making of this album I know this was oh shoot I'm forgetting the name of the studios already in uh, Seattle there oh, um, by Robert Lang Studios. yeah Robert Lang Studios in Seattle I, I know it was recorded there and I, I know John Goodmanson was involved as well but can you talk a little bit maybe about how the recording process might have been different for this one with the time in between and, and the little bit of a change in style that I think you guys had for little by little? Yeah, it was hugely different. Um, let's see how, how best to quantify that. So we had been on hiatus, though in my mind, we were broken up. Um, and I, was, I had been touring with a band called The Long Winters. Um, mm -hmm. as a kind of keyboard player and background or, you know, harmony vocalist. And all through that time, I found that I was thinking so much about the, the way the Harvey Danger experience kind of felt like it had been unnecessarily or unfairly kind of abbreviated. Like we got this incredible stroke of luck 
but then no like all our luck happened at once and then there was nothing but bad luck and it didn't make sense quite to me and I found that whenever I would see the other guys that's all we talked about you know like we we would bump into each other on the street and you know an hour and a half later having gone down <laughs> you're like what happened how did that you know what we did wrong or what we did right or what was fair or unfair it just was clear that it was unresolved and so Jeff and I started getting together and just like he would come over to my apartment and I had a piano and he was a he was a piano player before he ever played guitar. I, I mean, I mentioned okay. that he had never played guitar before the band. And uh, when he was a kid, his parents would make him you know, practice piano and violin like three, four hours a day. <laughs> Playing in a rock band was his way of like purging that experience. But, mm. but it also taught him how to use what he knew in a kind of slightly less refined or deliberate way and I thought he was just more expressive on the piano than he was on the guitar and also I had been incredibly obsessed with the Zombies album Odyssey and Oracle at that time and also with Harry Nilsson and if we were going to make new music I sort of was hoping to push them into that realm which is very different from how Harvey Danger had been before so that's what the songs we were making up were kind of feeling like and it took a bit of prodding from me, but he definitely was receptive to it. And so we just looked up one day and we like, we had a few songs that we thought were really good. And we just kind of decided, we asked Aaron to come and he contributed things to those songs. And suddenly it was the three of us and Evan, the drummer had moved away. He was pursuing his own kind of musical tastes really that were pretty different from the direction the rest of us had gone. And so he was in Chicago anyway. so. We sort of started feeling like uh, maybe we should just find someone else to play drums on just these few songs and we'll make a demo recording and it will just be for that you know like there was no huge intention but then it turned out that we liked it so much that we decided well okay you know it's 2004 now and now it's 10 years after our first show so maybe we'll just we'll play a show one show and we'll get somebody to fill in drum. And it kind of went, it was like that. And that went so well and was so fun and so good that we thought, well, why don't we just, we'll make a record. We don't have to call it Harvey Danger. We don't like, we'll just make it and we'll see. And um, so that was when Jeff became very attached to a couple of ideas. And one was that we should spend, we should not be afraid of spending money. Though none of us, we still didn't have much. And he had also, he had seen the documentary, I think it was the, one of those classic albums documentaries on, uh, you know, the, the, this British TV series. Um, he had seen the one about U2 making The Joshua Tree. And like, it wasn't that he wanted us to sound like U2 by any means, but he was really enamored of the fact that they had two producers. They had Brian Eno and Daniel Lanois, and that those two guys complemented each other, but also had these totally divergent talents um, that brought out, together, brought out all of the really good things that the band could do. And so he got really attached to that. So, of course, we wanted to work with John Goodmanson again, because we loved working with him, and he's 
the best, but also I had done some stuff with him and Steve Fisk, who is a proper Northwest like rock and roll legend at this point. He and John had worked together a lot over the years, but um, he existed on a sort of different plane of reality or so it seemed to us then. And, and we just thought, well, what if we had John and Steve essentially co-producing as they had in, in the past um, when John was like an, you know, an up and coming engineer. Uh, and so it was like, yeah, sure. Okay, great. And then, you know, of course that, and, and then Jeff also really, it was really important to him that we not just do the tracking at someone's house, but that we go to a proper studio. He was really into proper at that time. And so it wound up, of course, costing a fucking ton of money that I don't, I honestly don't remember where we got it, but I would imagine that Jeff probably put up a lot of it. And we recorded at Bob Lang Studios and, you know, Bob Lang Studios is, I'm, I can't remember what kind of amazing classic records have been made there, but it's a lot. And the, it's like, it has a very different vibe from the studios we worked in previously in Seattle because it just feels expensive and it is expensive. And, but it also feels sort of like a weird cocaine porno dungeon you know it's like it's it's the kind of place where it wouldn't be that weird if you found an old like grocery bag with twenty five thousand dollars in cash under the stairs and in fact someone did actually find just such what? an artifact at one point that's where you got your money yeah i know trying to remember how if, where it if only we had found it but it's also a fantastic studio and especially in the sort of natural reverb tank room. So we hold up in there for probably just a couple of weeks now that I'm thinking about it. It was probably not for very long, but we, you know, we went in there and we had, um, we had met this uh, fellow named Michael Welke, who was, I, I met him at another show that we had both played at. And he was a really, really good drummer and a really, really good, guy and just like super agreeable really happy to be there really talented and really didn't have though he you know he was like very good with when he had a thought about something he shared it he was very forthcoming about his his thoughts about this or that decision musically or whatever he was not trying to kind of impose himself on the process he was just like all right that's a song what do you think of this drum part and so he was on hand to play drums and he did a great job, but it was different in every way. Just getting back to the actual question, like except for the presence of John Goodmanson and you know me and Jeff and Aaron, everything else was different. Where we were doing it, how we were proceeding to work, um, having a second producer, having a new drummer was probably the biggest change of all. And that meant, that meant not only not having Evan's style of drumming, but also not having Evan to kind of be part of the process. But we, you know, that was the way things were. I think he had a complicated process with, you know, the fact that we were playing together again without him, but he was also gone. And so I think it was difficult for him briefly, but the work we made wasn't the kind of stuff he necessarily wanted to do anyway. But um, there's currently no love lost. We were, you know, it was difficult, but we're still very close friends. And then we just, sort of knocked it out. And it was also different because the songs were a little bit more like Jeff and I wrote them together rather than them being a kind of group, whole group collaboration. Um, uh, so, yeah. Okay. 
before we jump into the track by track, Sean, I wanted to ask you about the decision to release this for free. Also an interesting sign of the times, or perhaps you guys were a little cutting edge on that. Can you talk about that decision to release this for free on the website? After the record was finished, we, I mean, we thought it was really good. It was 2005 by then. Napster had totally changed everything about the way music was not only bought and sold, but the way it was even thought about um, for younger audiences. And also the, the remaining labels in the world had also really doubled and tripled down on, if we're going to put out this record, the band has to commit to whatever, 16 months of touring. And the, you know, it was, it was just a lot more sort of, if you wanted to be a band, you had to be in a van for most of your life. And we just didn't really like doing that. Or, I mean, in fact, we sort of liked it, but, um, but there was also the mitigating factor of the fact that uh, Aaron, and I can talk about this more openly now, um, Aaron had cystic fibrosis and um, he was already by that point a little ways beyond the age he was supposed to like live to like his when he was born he was parents were told that he wasn't going to see 30 but by then of course he was well past 30 and doing okay but a couple of times during our long stretches of touring he almost died like i watched my friend come close to dying and he it, it was just sort of in his nature that he wouldn't ever say guys i'm feeling really run down i really would I would really appreciate it if we could just take a couple of days off because he didn't want to be the one to make everything, you know, grind to a halt. He wasn't likely to speak up for himself. So I did. And I was like, you know, look, we can't, we just can't be that kind of band. It can't be done. And so that and the whole, like the changing landscape and also I guess the, uh, this whatever stigma may have attached itself to the way we had, you know, kind of entered the public sphere, you know, it had died down and people sort of didn't, people were, I guess, in a weird way that people were less judgmental than they had been several years before, but we didn't really make that much sense in the landscape of popular indie music um, at all. Uh, there had been some precedent for a band kind of, redeeming itself from you know mtv one hit wonder status but we were a different thing you know like we just didn't none of the models really seemed to apply to us and we also we figured out like we went to when the record was done we were so proud of it and we went and played a show at south by southwest and we had done shows at south by southwest years before before the first record came out and they felt like these great kind of triumphant oh God, you know, people are hearing about you kind of like that, like sort of industry centric things that felt like we had made some progress. But then this one was just like, it just felt like, you know, to paraphrase Joni Mitchell's album title, you know, a chalk mark in a rainstorm. But it was, it was sort of like, who gives a shit? And also how much time are you prepared to spend on the road? And, you know, all this stuff. And also, why don't you look like you're, 21 anymore because you're not and so we were really discouraged and then it was Jeff who posited that 
there was a way to release the album not i mean saying it was for free is i mean it's true but it's also a little bit of a misnomer because we did kind of concoct this elaborate mission statement with it and and we meant it but it was also like obviously the point is we're putting this record up on the internet for free because first of all it's going to be there anyway whether we put it there or not second of all what do we really want like do we really want to make as much money as we can or do we want people to hear this new music really what's more important people hearing it or people buying it and we always had been of the mind that people hearing it is more important so we kind of cooked up this wild for us you know like Jeff handled all the technical backend stuff and um, I wrote all the manifestos and we kind of like put it up and you could download it for free and you could also buy the CD with the bonus disc and the package of shirts and buttons and stickers and stuff and we would fulfill it. And I have to say that I was, I was skeptical that it would be, that it would mean very much to very many people, but because of the times and because there still, I, there still weren't a ton of bands, at least not bands that you knew about, doing that sort of thing because for whatever reason, they wanted to maximize <laughs> their uh, you know, income on making records. Yeah, and that's, yeah. you know, there's obviously who wouldn't except for us, but um, it's, <laughs> there's no one way of doing anything, but you know, we, what we found out was that actually that was the only zeitgeist thing that we actually managed to hook up with at that time. Like we didn't look right. We didn't sound right, but we had our tech specs all sorted out. So it got mm. a ton of publicity, some of which we, you know, we hired a publicist for a little while to promote the record, but not to promote the delivery system, but it was like on all these tech websites and Jeff had been in, he had gone back to school to get his master's degree in whatever computer science, I think. Um, so that was a world that he knew a lot more about um, than certainly I did. It was on things like whatever, Boing Boing or like Fark or something. I, I still don't know much about that world, but as a result of that, it got massively downloaded. It was like like 400,000 downloads in the first week or something. And so basically like within a month or two of putting out this record that cost us more money than we had and really was sort of, we had no idea if anyone was gonna be interested. We had basically, it had been downloaded by more people than had bought our first two records combined. Really? And, oh, wow. and, we, re and we recouped all of the money and were in the, in profit within a month or two really without having to ever leave the house i mean i knew enough to know that just because half a million people download your thing doesn't mean they're gonna doesn't mean they're gonna like it it doesn't even mean they're gonna listen to it but i, I mean a lot of people really were sympathetic to our like our mission statement about you know like first of all don't be an idiot just because you don't want people to download music and do file sharing it doesn't mean they're not going to do it because they are doing it and that's just how people listen to music it's like it is the same as turning on the radio was 25 years ago right you know when the first record came out we would hear things like hey a radio station in atlanta is playing it and we'd be like oh my god no way 
But with this, we, we would get messages like, hey, I'm an associate professor at MIT. I'm including this mission statement in my, uh, on my syllabus for this next term. And it was stuff like that. And, wow. and it was, you know, felt really good. And then, of course, I guess it was probably two years after that, or maybe one year after that, that um, Radiohead did exactly yeah, the same in, in thing. Yeah, in rainbows, yeah. Mm-hmm. Within rainbows. The big difference, their pay what you want or donate what you want scheme had a suggested price that was kind of hardwired into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ours was just a blank field. So um, they probably... Also, their Radiohead and also In Rainbows was a you know probably a better record than Little by Little, but um, who's to say? But I um, I did chance to meet uh, Radiohead, some of them um, backstage at an REM show in in Amsterdam, wow. and I really really wondered: is it possible that they even heard of this thing that we did? Because it was really well publicized at the time. Yeah, yeah. And I asked Colin Greenwood, the bass player, and he said, I've never heard of that. Okay, all right. So that was what he said, and I believe him. (laughs) Well, should we transition into getting to the track by track of this album? Sure. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. The first track is called Wine, Women, and Song. opening track i really like the the piano that kind of grabs your attention right away and uh catchy lyrics it's fun to to sing along why don't you tell us what inspired you to write this song and and uh, a little bit about it i mean why wine women and song was a good the themes that i was kind of fixated on at the time which was the bit the main one was you know i'm how old was i then so i was 31 or two um when we were doing that and why do I feel so old? Like, why, why do I feel like a genuinely old person? Why is my life so kind of shrouded with regret? And, and also like, what, like, why is that so funny to me in a way? Like it, it, there was a sort of comical, but also genuinely melancholy sense of like, I'm standing outside myself all the time and looking in and, and that's kind of where it arose. And I, and I, I sort of, I don't know, I feel like my style of writing song lyrics was it had evolved a bit into a slightly more I, I don't know I think that this like the songs are more internally consistent like they start off being about something and at the end they're still about that thing um which is not something that my previous work had been I don't know I just thought it was like funny and sad and real and like I loved the piano part that Jeff mm-hmm. was coming up with that was the thing like to me getting him to be willing to play piano instead of just guitar it was the key to unlocking something in him where like his parts were just more accomplished than his guitar parts had been um, not to say his guitar parts before weren't good or fine but they were like you know broad strokes and like 
there's only so many times you can stomp on the rap pedal when the chorus comes up before it feels like that's your only trick. And so putting him in a situation where he had actually way more kind of musical resources at his disposal meant that the music could be more, I don't know, evocative or more sort of just more expressive generally. Basically the Harvey Danger thing has always been kind of heavy and or sad and or serious ideas expressed with a certain, you know, sense of humor because yeah. like when feelings are really overwhelming, you are overwhelmed. And then once you're, it's like you're, it's like when you're swimming in the beach, uh, at the beach and you're in the ocean and a huge wave comes up and pushes you down to the, to the bottom of the, you know, it's shallow water, but you're still being held down by it. And then you get up and you take that breath. And then it's sort of, it's so absurd that you're even in the ocean. What the hell are you thinking swimming in the ocean? Of course, you're going to get pushed under by a wave that you just can't help but kind of laugh. And that that's sort of where hmm. all of the things I've ever done come from, I think. The, yeah. This the sense of like, yes, it like everything about it is painful and everything about it is is kind of ridiculous. It's cool to hear you say that because that's the impression I always got with Harvey Danger too. And I think I was mentioning I felt a little bit of a shift from those first two to this one. One of the things I think that stood out for me is and I, I'm sure it was self-aware all along, but in those first two albums, it felt like once things got a little bit too real, that humor was kind of holding it at arm's length. Yeah. And now with that wittiness and the humor as kind of a defense, it still felt like the undercurrent of it rose to the top a little bit more. It wasn't quite as dismissive as maybe you could kind of do a tongue-in-cheek and laugh as the song ended. It was like, okay, that humor is still in there but I still felt the weight of the subject matter a little bit more on the third album. And I think that's part of what made it stick with me the most. That makes me so happy to hear you say, because that I think that's exactly what happened through no, I mean, probably some intention on my part, but like I was just as much a, an observer of it as you were, but like, I agree that the criticisms I have of our first two albums are that it's not that they're both funny and serious. It's that the, the humor and the seriousness are two totally different components. I would say that the song Jack the Lion on the first album is by far the most sort of directly personal autobiographical thing that, I, that we ever did. And because it was so intimate and intense, I mean, you know, I mean, it's intimate and intense in the sense that like, it's about me spending a weekend with my grandfather when he was dying and I knew he was dying and I was, you know, and we, we were both close and not close. And I was wrestling with a lot of intense feelings that I didn't know how to really even have much less describe. And so the decision that we made, and I'm sure I instigated it because I thought it was sort of, I guess I thought it was funny, but I also thought it was, I don't know, better to hide behind this kind of giant wall of fake anthemic sounding guitars and the backing vocals that I did. And just like the, to, to sort of treat it as though it weren't intimate and to kind of, I thought it was interesting and we all did. We all thought it was interesting to kind of put those two, it's not to combine those things so much as it is to sort of, you know, smash them into each other and see 
how that affected, if it affected things. And it did. But if you ever, I don't know if you ever heard the version of that song that we did that was just me and Jeff on Jeff playing piano instead of guitar and Aaron was playing very, very quiet bass leads as he did, but there were no drums. And it was a much more like super intense, really committing to the, to the human emotion of it. And it was, you know, like it was hard to get through it without really like break, bursting into tears or bursting yeah. into flames yeah. or something. But, but the, you know, it's fundamentally a different, everything about it is different than the record version. And in a way it might be too maudlin or too intense or, or too, just like too embarrassingly intimate for some, but to me, it felt like, yeah, well, that's actually much more like what it, how it felt for me to be there. I did carry that into the little by little stuff because it was like to not only not only have those two contrasting things but to actually integrate them somehow so that it's not like oh I have these intense feelings what a you know what a silly thing to do or you know like or, or who cares about feelings but to be like yeah I had feelings and within those feelings, I was aware of myself and aware of the absurdity of life, but also I still had them. And that is exactly what happened on the third album. And that's probably why it means more to me than the others. Hmm. Yeah, that's really cool to hear you you unpack that. Where was this song written in terms of the order? I mean, it ends up here on the at the beginning. As, as Shane said, I think there's really great elements with the piano starting that feels like an opening track. But was it an early track written for this album? I think it was. I don't, that's a little harder to remember, but it was definitely, yeah, it was among the first ones. The, uh, a couple of them on there are holdovers from the, when the band was together the first time, the songs we sort of worked with a little, but didn't quite nail or, or whatever, but most of them are new. Um, and yeah, One Woman Song was definitely one of the first ones. I get the sense that the message generally about this is just somebody that maybe has tasted a hedonistic lifestyle. I mean, it's kind of like sex, drugs, and rock and roll is another way to say yeah. those things. And then kind of thinking that you were going to find the answers to everything in that and then realizing that that's a bit empty as well in other ways. Well, I don't know what it was like for you when you were a youngster, like a teenager, but um, for me... I just like, I never, ever, ever had the thing of like, oh, wow, I'm so young, so great. I get to be young. I hated being young. And I, all I ever wanted was experience. All I ever wanted was to be, you know, I felt like, wow, you know, when I'm older, all this stuff that doesn't make any sense and all these feelings of total dislocation and not relating to anybody around me, well, that'll all be solved by being older because everyone will be older and wiser and that'll be great. But in fact, it was probably more concisely stated by um, the notorious B.I.G. More money, more problems. You know, like it, yeah. it, just, it doesn't make it better. Um, life is still life is still just suffering, really. But um, it's that it's the sort of like I can 
hear a voice inside me a lot of the time trying to impose or confer a, a narrative on my life as it is happening. And every time I commit to one of those narratives, it's always wrong. Something else happens to come along and tell you that you may think you are this seasoned old <laughs> seasoned old dude, but like really you're just a you're just a person who was making decisions and there's no road to happiness. There's no anything. There's just sort of you just mm. try and be a better person than you were before. And these misfortunes that that are being described in the song or these kind of whatever emotional pitfalls, they're it's what everybody has. You know, everybody has their version of it pretty much. And the urge to romanticize your suffering is the thing that creates the most suffering. In one respect, if you're not looking back on your life saying, well, I should have done this, I could have done that, I know something different now, then you're not really growing. So I don't think you can ever grow out of that. I don't think you ever reach an age where everything makes sense uh, as long as you're still thinking and trying to to figure things out. You're, you're always going to kind of wrestle back and forth with, well, what was I thinking back then? And why did I make that decision? And who am I now? And who will I be in the future? You're always kind of intertwined with all that stuff. So I, I can totally relate to that. I was also ha- having to chuckle. It made me think of something. My good high school buddy texted me the other day. We were we were just catching up. Hadn't talked to him in a while. And, and we're, bo- we're both early 30s. I'm 34. I think he's 34, 35 as well. And we were just talking how neither one of us is married. And all our friends are getting married, having kids and feeling like there's this pressure to uh, be a certain person or conform or, you know, that sort of thing. And, and he's like, you know, I came to this realization the other day that adulthood is probably the biggest lie we were ever told. (laughs) You know, it's just, it's not real. Cause when, when you're a kid and you're 10 years old, you see your parents who are 30 and you think, man, they got everything figured out. They're just, they're old and wise and they're, they're, they're teaching us everything. You look up to them and then one day you're 30 and you're like, I really don't know much at all. Like apparently they were full of shit too then. And when we just thought it was all perception and then you get to 40 and 50 and I'm, I'm sure um, there's always that realization where you look back and you're like, you know, I'm, I'm probably not where I thought I thought I was going to be, you know, like looking ahead, <laughs> but yeah. it's, all, it's all perspective. But it's also all like, I mean, every version of what you just said, which I think is really true, is based on like you make decisions when you're, I mean, I was very fixated on the fact that, and I still am to a degree, like my life at that time was all based on decisions I made when I was 19 years old. And I didn't know anything when I was 19 years old, except I knew how I felt or I knew kind of, I knew some version of what I wanted. There were so many things I didn't understand. And so you see a lot now about people who are graduating from college now saddled with this debt that they can never pay off. And, you know, they have made decisions about what they want their lives to be at a time when they have not really sampled any kind of independent mm-hmm. living. Um, and so, like, you just feel so bad for a, like, a I mean, in a way you feel bad for a 15 year old kid who decides, oh, yeah, I'll be a dentist, you know, <laughs> and then kind of goes through the incredibly arduous education and all that stuff that gets you to being qualified to be a dentist, you know, then they get to where they were aiming for. And you can easily imagine that they're like, oh God, what if I had just tried to write that poem or, you know, what? I mean, those are mm-hmm. kind of 
silly examples, but the idea that you not only could know, but it must know what you want your life to be like before you have really lived any of it is crazy. Yeah, I mean, to quote the song, it, it, it's like paying homage to an image drawn from some other head. You know, it's yeah. you're getting a, a vision of something you think you're supposed to do. You're 19. You think, well, OK, I'm going to borrow that image from the head of my grandfather, who was a dentist mm -hmm. or. Right. Or you your know. or your friend who, yeah. you know, yeah. I mean, it, it does go it does go the other way where like at that time, I didn't know anyone who wasn't immersed in the culture of independent music or film or you know writing where the best thing you could ever be is a an artist who is able to support him or herself by doing their art and not having to have a day job and the people who like chickened out and went and got a job at microsoft or but you get out of that group of people for even a little while and meet others who are like have the exact opposite like they they may have a certain sort of longing to know what it's like to just have like be a rock and roll singer or a you know or a writer or, or whatever like to live in the arts but in fact they would never ever choose the things that you have to choose to in order to like follow that life because it's like what if you're not good what if it does, what if nobody cares about what you do what if you have liver cancer you know like how are you going to address that like like when I was 22, those questions seemed like ridiculous contrivances because of course, who cares about liver cancer? Who cares about a house? But in fact, everybody cares about those things when they are what they're going through. So it, it was just, I don't know, there was a certain degree of having to confront the things I thought were my convictions but were in fact just sort of like, as arbitrary as any other decision. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. And that's, that's going on a lot in the record too. I mean, I was, I was in fact married when we recorded Little by Little. Okay, <laughs> was, yeah. And I was, I believe, no longer married when uh, it came out. I think wine, women, and song can unlock the door to happiness. You just you just have to properly dose the three. <laughs> but <laughs> right. they're all good right. things. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the lines I really liked in that song, she said that she was hungrier than I was brilliant. I don't know, maybe you can't be hungrier than somebody else is brilliant in every circumstance. I think that transitions into the next song, Cream and Bastards Rise. This is track two.
after the first song and the piano that catches you off guard if you're a Harvey Danger fan leading into this album, you hear Aaron Huffman's bass start off track two and, and reminds you of some of the classic sounds of, of Harvey Danger. I, I think I was mentioning to you, Sean, as we were emailing in advance of this album, but to me, Aaron's bass, just the sound of it really is signature to Harvey Danger. I just can't imagine it without it. And uh, yeah. to hear it again for track two on this one, I remember after your hiatus, putting this song on and just kind of a smile coming across my face hearing him play that bass line. Yeah. You know, Aaron died five years ago. I mean, when I think of him, I think of lots of things, but his bass leads in particular, are so, they're so distinctive and they're so distinctively him that it really is emotional conjures him right back to life. It was the signature of the sound of that band. It was the thing that we did that other bands just didn't ever do. The way it arose has everything to do with the way Jeff and Aaron learned to play music together. And Mm. Aaron's got the showier, more expressive part of that combination, but the Jeff part is equally important. And that's so much like what they were sort of like as, as people. Which Jeff is like, he's very solid and he's very dedicated. And being the support mechanism is the essential component of any kind of thing like this. Aaron had just this incredible knack for, I, I always think of it as like filigree, you know, like he is so good at those little details and his little melodic contributions to the, to the songs were, they're the thing I remember. That's the parts that get stuck in my head the most, too, um, yeah. when I listen to Harvey Danger. I think I had mentioned, too, when we were emailing back and forth, I got to talk to him just once at, at a show. It, it, we probably talked for five minutes, but, you know, it meant a lot to me. Yeah. I didn't know much about, you know, his, his sickness or anything at that time, and it wasn't too long after that that he had passed. And I remember recalling that conversation and then reading your article in The Stranger about him as a great fan and just kind of feeling like I had an even deeper connection to his playing and, and your band as a whole. So I yeah. just want to tell you, I really appreciated that. Thank you. I mean, I, I've talked about him a lot and I never, I really never tire of it because he really did. He loomed very large in my life and, and feel privileged to have been able to know him at all, um, but to know him really well. And to, I mean, like we were pretty different people but we had common language that I still like I still all the time but I find myself like hearing like I'll be watching a movie or a television show or something and I'll just hear someone say something that I know would have amused him I know it would have made him laugh and I just I almost like I almost whisper it to Mm -hmm. his absence as a kind just as a way of you know consecrating that thing because he really like the main thing we had other than making music that was this private sense of humor. And like, I, I can think of many, many times when, you know, we'd be even on stage together and he would just lean over and whisper something to me that was just an inside joke. It could be a line from a film we'd seen or whatever. And I would just, no one made me laugh like Mm -hmm. that. He was so (laughs) fucking funny. And I, and, but, but he was also not an easy laugh. He was very hard to, move hard to impress but i could always get him you know making him laugh was sort of <clears throat> one of the great achievements of my <laughs> of my life but yeah like the um 
the way he played the bass was, you know, the it was just like every other creative thing he did. It was only he did it in a way that only he could have done it, and that's to me that is the sign of a major artist. And Jeff too on his guitars again, another one that just sounded very classic, Harvey Danger. sounds different from classic Harvey Danger because it doesn't feel like it doesn't really feel like it has much to do with sort of 90s culture it feels musically connected more like to the 60s yeah um, but, I could see but, that yeah. but maybe not I don't know the the yeah. bridge is probably not that's probably not true of the bridge also the thing I hear about this song is that I wish it's like just past the top of my range vocally it's hard to sing I wish we had just taken it down step i can hear myself straining to sing it so i i think the words are pretty good i, I think the words are really good too i was wondering if there was a impetus for writing this or it was just kind of a general concept were you thinking about anything specific when you were thinking about cream and bastards rising i was um you know the that line comes from the same movie that the title of the first harvey danger album came from which is harper the paul newman yeah, Paul Newman. I, I was reading that. Yeah, yeah. But I just love that expression. And I, I tried to get it into a song for many years. But the, um, yeah, I mean, it was 2004. And then we wrote it probably in 2004. And then we recorded it in early 2005. And I'm sure I don't have to remind anybody that that was the year George Bush won his second term. You know, we've since lived through much more traumatic presidential bullshit, but um, the idea that that he could even win again, that, that, that anyone in the world would fall for that was unimaginable to me. I just, I, I couldn't even believe it that it happened. And I think I was not alone in that. But then to sort of look at John Kerry after the fact and be like, wait, we thought that guy was going to win? You know, like it... it there was some there's some kind of thing about how John Kerry and Al Gore both had presented themselves as these haughty patrician above all a complex mind you know that kind of stuff that was totally ineffective as a means of capturing the public imagination and then you know there's probably also like a 5% component of thinking about the music business <laughs> I, I, that's where my brain was going a little bit yeah thinking about more than on the music business sides i wasn't sure if there was yeah. any connections there yeah yeah i mean there's a, there's for sure a degree of that and there's no, sort of no way to divorce that from my you know the where i was at that time because certainly when i no longer had any access to it i was uh i was even less impressed yeah yeah but I like the, the line to me, the people who could buy and sell you sharing a joke that they will never tell you. So much of that is my experience of the kind of class divide. And really, that was this was all before social media had kind of exerted its, its influence. Probably there was MySpace by then. I don't remember. But like that thing of why is everyone else having a perfect life and I am sitting here so lonely and sad and never get anything I want. Both sides of that equation are incorrect. Like, right. No, nobody's living a perfect life and you are not just suffering, but it's not how it feels. 
I'm, right, more, I'm right. much more interested in the way songs help you kind of get at what it feels like in the moment before you have had the kind of grace to apply a little bit of perspective and wisdom. I think even though it's not true entirely that only cream and bastards rise, I think to have a song written about that feels good for people that often feel that because you know the lines you you typically hear are like, you know, just keep working hard and good things come to those who wait. And if you are a genuine person, people will, you know, all these things that people tell you growing up, you think, oh, I can believe in that. And then just to have a song like this, it's just like, let me tell you how it really is. Yeah. I, I think, and you did it in such a good way. I think the lyrics uh, just say that so well. In, in so many ways, it just make you laugh and also think. Uh, greatly written song. And then to have that laughter at the end, did that come naturally? Did you think about that before you wrote it? It almost seems like something you might have captured at the end. Do you remember how that might have come together? I would bet that it was part of the song from the moment it was, you know, finished, that it was always there. It's probably true. You know, that that end chorus, I, it's, a, it's a double chorus. So the momentum had to ramp up to have it kind of be a more organic and slightly unhinged thing at the end that felt like that's what needed to be there. You know, that mocking laughter is the thing that you fear the most that, you know, like you turn your back and everybody's just laughing at you. Yeah. No matter what, like, it doesn't even matter what the context is that you that you are being mocked and derided by people who are way happier and more successful than you at all times is, I don't know why that's such a kind of big part of being alive now, but it is. And it's also, I mean, I don't know, that's maybe that's, maybe it's not, maybe other people don't have that same thing, but I, I suspect that people do. No, I think you're onto yeah, something. I think so. Social media is in large part to, I don't know if blame is the right word, but maybe uh, to attribute to that progression. And I, I don't, I don't think, I don't yeah. think they've created it. I think it's human nature. They've just, social media in general has just magnified all of these things of human nature that have been suppressed for a long time, just by nature of the world being smaller and so much information being out there and being able to present yourself how you want on the internet to, to put, to put yeah. time into it and think about how you want to look and what you want to share. And it's not, it's not reality anymore. It's just kind of, there's a lot of fakeness to it. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a performance. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's torture yeah. psychologically in a weird way. Like it just, it just takes all of the kind mm -hmm. of neurotic and, and insecure parts of your psyche and just attaches a jumper cable to its genitals you know like and, and just like really really drives you to the worst conclusion every time the truth is even more grim in a way but the truth is that no one's thinking about you no one's thinking about you and la no one's taking the time to even laugh at you you don't even register you're nowhere near their radar which is in a way worse but it sounds yeah. like at this point that's sort of the most comforting possibility is that you've been forgotten. Mm -hmm. 
I've never thought of it like a performance, but that's true. And it's hard to separate it from things that we classify as performance, like TV and music or anything that falls under the category of entertainment. Sometimes it feels real and it replicates things that are real and it makes you think about real feelings. But at the end of the day, you know that it's not necessarily biographical or, or, or true in its, in its pure sense. But social media, when people are sharing things, you just kind of, you take it as if it is true, but you don't really separate the fact that this is just a snapshot and, and things get misconstrued and, you know. Right. It's a, I mean, I think it's a, it's a performance in the sense that really most human interactions of any kind are somewhat sure. performance, yeah. but like, this is a public performance. I mean, it's, you see it so clearly when famous people die. Um, because people are, they're expressing something they are probably actually feeling, mm. grief or bereavement or sympathy or whatever. But the way that those things incarnated in these few words that people have, space to write or whatever, the way people are sort of elevating their own connection to the dead, like it, it's a performance that makes the self of the person who's, you know, doing the performance, that's the subject of the performance, the self. And that is in a way the the only subject that is kind of universal at this point. It's like, it's the, the search for a, it used to be maybe the search for an authentic self, but now it's the sense, the search for a kind of a credible self that other people will sort of, uh, you know, like sign on to or, you know, buy or believe mm -hmm. that the, um, the idea that you know you loved Prince or David Bowie so much more than just those other people over there. I mean, you may actually have, you may actually feel it, but the competition mm -hmm. that is inherent in it, I just see a lot of people screaming out to be noticed, mm -hmm. to be saved from drowning. And and I I have sympathy for that. I have empathy for that. I have, I relate to it, but I also feel like you have to not do it. You have to like, you have to not need that, that validation because. Yeah. It has to become an active decision on a regular basis. Absolutely. And it's hard. It's really hard because being and feeling invisible and feeling like what you're going through has no significance to anyone but you is a, it's a hard thing to live with for a lot of people. It's not a race, it's not a competition And if it were, you'd be in no position to Get them to listen to you if you had to Not even if your life depended on it Should we move on to track three? Sure. Track three is called Moral Centralia. Transition from a faster pace to starting off with a little bit slower pace for track three. The imagery I get with the subject matter, but in the beginning of this song, 
almost has kind of like the Christmas bell type of sound in the background. Yeah. Puts me in kind of a wintry place. You know, somebody coming from Seattle and what I think the reference is here makes me think of this taking place in the winter time as maybe you're transitioning on a drive between Seattle and Portland. Mm. Well, Centralia, it's equidistant from Seattle and Portland. Yes. And it's directly yeah. in the middle. And I heard a story one time that there were so many motels in that area because people who were having romantic affairs, they would meet in Centralia and it would be like they were meeting halfway. Ah, okay. And yeah. I happened to have been in not quite all the way in a situation like that but the idea that this midway point was much like the affair itself especially if you're cheating on someone it's neither here nor there like it's not Mm -hmm. love exactly it doesn't mean it's not kind of love but it's not really love it's not really a relationship but it definitely is a relationship in a way like it's sort of it doesn't give anyone anything that they ultimately really need but you settle for this kind of compromised version because whatever reason you're too scared to be honest or you're too shallow to be kind or whatever it is that there's some kind of metaphorical something that I found really irresistible about Centralia. The whole, I guess the thesis of the song is just that like you may be engaged in some sort of emotional or brinkmanship or brinksmanship that you are like, you know, you want to do this transgression, but you can't really, you can't really justify it. And you can't, and all these sort of things that get kind of in the swirl of that particular group of emotions, that's just a certain kind of um, narcissism and a certain kind of indulgence in yourself that really not only prevents you from being real in the troubled kind of primary relationship, but it's sort of like the, it's the reason you can't have the satisfaction that you're so like yearning for is that you're still in this pursuit of some unattainable i don't know whatever the feeling is that you get from being with someone else but not quite all the way being with them was I mean it was a very heavy subject and again treated musically with you know much more sort of not even I have no idea how to describe the song from like a musical genre perspective maybe you do no I I, yeah I I agree with you it's hard to put it in like a particular context of a of a genre that I would know outside of it but I like the energy that comes from the difference between those two parts, you know, Mm -hmm. where it starts off slower and, you know, almost more echoey with the, you know, the she said, and then the little piano interlude. And then all of a sudden kind of like a, you know, a wave of music comes out of nowhere with the chorus. And I think it fits the words where that's the part where the person's doing what you described of trying to kind of wrestle with this place of moral indiscretion, you Mm -hmm. know, and trying to figure out where he is. voices back and forth with the music really well yeah like that. um yeah I, I mean that's as good as an explanation as i 
could ever come up with. I think that's it's um I love the way the song kind of works and the way it feels. It's so fun. It was really fun to perform. And you know, I mean, I guess it de it definitely is reaching for that like uh zombies beach boys kind of mid 60s thing in a way, but it also isn't. But this is also where some of like Aaron plays some of my favorite leads that he ever did um, in this song uh, and they're just little little touches but they really work for me Sean how do you write we've talked to some other artists about their writing style and and some of them like have mentioned that they just all got together and they just started playing a bunch of stuff and maybe they mumble a bunch of garbage and then kind of sit together and go it sounds like you're saying this or they piece it together in something that becomes kind of a disjointed poem that may or may not have entirely direct meaning but you know leaves the door open you know yours are very you know there's a lot of layers to this and and there's a lot of you know literary references and i would think that you almost have to start with the lyrics before the music and i would think your band members would probably be driven insane trying to put music to these words, but maybe it doesn't come together that way. And how do you write music like this? Yeah, <laughs> it was incredibly difficult. I talked to a lot of people about how, about their bands and like how their bands worked. And it was very clear that no one, I never met anybody else who worked like the way we did, which is why we don't have more music. But I, I also think it's why we sound the way we sounded. And I don't think anybody else, like we, I really believe we didn't sound like any other band ever. Even when we tried to, we couldn't. Yeah, the way it was was that it was two separate things. One is that I had a series of notebooks that I would keep in my little back pocket or in my backpack or something. And always, always had them at hand. If a line would occur to me or even a couplet or whatever, I would just write it down. And then I would sort of form associations with, one cluster of the lyrics and maybe another cluster of the lyrics and I almost never all the way finished a whole song's worth of words because it sort of it didn't make sense to do that until there was some music to work with but um they were all in a way I guess like prompts like a song would always start with a you know a rhyming couplet you know wine women and song I tried them all it did not take me long that was probably in my notebook starting in whatever 1990 seven or something and I just didn't you know I kept trying to use it in something you know to build around it to kind of flesh out whatever was suggested by that meanwhile the music would be something that the four of us originally and then the two of us really Jeff and I or Aaron and I would just kind of like be together and they would either show me something they had come up with or they would come up with it on the spot or we would come up with it on the spot and I would sort of have the notebooks in my lap really and just be looking through them and see like does this go with this does it make you know like like that and but that was sort of our our symbiosis was that way like I was the one who thought of things in terms of words like that and they didn't and they didn't really I mean the number of times someone in the band who wasn't Evan the number of times they said anything to me about the words was like this conversation has gone on longer than the amount of <laughs> times we talked about what the words were in our songs, other than if they, if I did something that they felt uncomfortable with, which they would always be very quick to tell me. Um, sure. Sure. But uh, yeah, it was really a weird fragmented thing, but 
it all again it arose out of us learning together i miss it because it's you know it's really hard to establish a new way of working with other people and i really like working with other people it's almost like you were building little blocks you know building blocks within your notebook and then when the music came it was like is there a open space that fits this piece and, and then building yes from there. exactly yeah. and then it would be like okay well this one is so close to being done i just need like four lines through, like in the middle or or we decided to do it a little bit we decided to cut a verse so now i have to decide which of these five extra verses i'm going to use or lose or whatever it was very construction-y you know and yeah. modular yeah. It, you know, it, it suited us. When wicked thoughts come into Raylia, you'll wind up in Centralia morally. I'm looking for a decent cup of coffee. Try to be halfway. It seems like I'm stealing your words, but really I'm just giving them back to you. I think this is a good place in the album to to mention your your vocabulary your extensive vocabulary as well trevor trevor made the uh the comment or had put in his notes that there's probably nothing that rhymes with centralia besides interalia and that we both had to look that up because yeah. we had no idea what that meant yeah i'm sure your writing experience and background i know you were writing for the magazine and in college prior to getting to music so that probably helped some but can you expand on where where your vocabulary uh, comes from and the word choice. I mean, do you spend a lot of time looking for things that rhyme and trying to, uh, you know, pick the right words for it? Or have you always just had a pretty, you know, robust vocabulary and read, read a lot? I always have been pretty into collecting words. It's the thing that is the most interesting to me in the world is just language. I don't know. I have an affinity for language in mm -hmm a very particular kind of way and it's to me using the term inter alia is really funny like to use it in a rock and roll song or pop song it's it's comical to me because it's so totally unlikely it's so totally un like even unjustifiable it is absurd to do that because <laughs> I mean no one really knows what it means I frequently have to remember what it means but to people who do know what it means and to people who do get why it's funny they really get it and they really like it and I mean in so many ways so many of the lines in Harvey Danger songs are there you know are sort of me trying to make Evan laugh you know because he really does have that same kind of affinity and our 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 humor was always very kind of verbal and yeah it's super it's supremely dorky i mean it's i love it i'm not like disavowing it when i say that i just like i would you know the things i like are often really dorky but um like in a way it doesn't matter what words are in a song it matters within the given song but there are throwaway lines in so many songs and to me the idea of putting these kind of fussy words that are inherently like they're often signs that a person is just too snooty or pretentious or whatever to be able to communicate anything um to put them in a context where some of the most powerful rock and roll lyrics are like yeah 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 you know that it goes a long way or you know it felt all right that's a great rock and roll lyric 
it's like putting glasses on your dog mm -hmm. so you can take a picture, which I've done several times. They hate it, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. but it can be done. It's a joke, but it is also an acknowledgement that like, well, you know, actually it's a self-consciously clever line. And it's, to, I'm conscious of the fact that it is in a way really stupid to do that. It's impractical to do it, but that's to me part of why it's, why it's good. You know, I'm, I've always been way too verbal it probably won't surprise you or anyone listening to this that I talk too much. You know, I talk a lot. I can't, I, in a way, I can't stop talking. But that's because I'm, when I finally get a chance to talk about this stuff, I have years and years of thoughts kind of piled up about it. But also, you know, when wicked thoughts come into Alia, you wind up in Centralia. It's like, it's, that's a, it's a good rhyme, yeah, you know? It's a good rhyme, yeah. And in a way, yeah. it doesn't matter if you don't know what Interalia means because you also might not know what Centralia means. And in a way, <laughs> it doesn't even matter um, because in truth, the, whatever is being expressed in the song is being expressed on multiple levels. If you care to zoom in on those lines, you find that they do have an internal consistency and they do actually add up. I have seldom been able to call a song finished if it doesn't kind of add up. Mm, yeah. And sometimes I think that's a weakness in my writing because I just can't, I can't uh, sort of surrender to it not mattering what it says because I always want it to matter too much. Well, as, as listeners, we, we really appreciate that complexity, especially, you know, Trevor and I who like to dive into the song and find those deeper meanings. Um, yeah. You know, for you to be a... a perfectionist if that's the right right word on trying to find the the proper way to to express yourself and say what you're trying to say i mean i really appreciate that there are a lot i've tried to i've tried to imitate a lot of other writers whose kind of styles i love i wish god if i only could do be you know be like that and sometimes they're really um really sort of lofty like you know leonard cohen or something and he's easy to imitate, but he's, it's impossible to get his actual cadence. You never capture it because only yeah. he, like he, that was a, a sound that only came out of him. And then there are other kind of, every one of the kind of ones that you would guess that I was a huge fan of, you know, from whatever Randy Newman to Pavement and to, you know, like the, the to Elvis Costello, like the, the really hyperverbal people. I imitated them a lot strived to imitate them because I wanted to make something that felt like their stuff made me feel. But, but when I, when I would just imitate them, no, of course that stuff never felt like that. It only felt like bad versions of these great writers. So I had to eventually just settle for the fact that I can only do my thing. I think that's what you got to do, whether it's music or just being yourself in general. I think is really the only thing that's going to make you be be meaningful or, or be something that people kind of really relate to. I think that must be really interesting as a as an artist to know that somewhere out there people are connecting with it and maybe even if it's slightly different than how you you meant it just like you were maybe quoting some of those artists, you know, t to you, you know, to think, "Oh, I wish I could write like that or this is, this speaks to me the way they do that. I wish I wish I could figure out how to do that." And I guess as somebody that's been listening to you my whole life, to, to be able to tell you, you, you did it to me. No. I mean, you, you made me feel those types of things. Yeah. So 
I just appreciate you eventually just giving in to being yourself because that's what worked at least at least to me when I'm listening to Harvey Danger. So wow, um, thank you. That's you know you can't you really can't ask for better than that. No. So thank you. Well, I mentioned that this song was vying for my favorite after this most recent deep dive. If it did become my favorite, that means it had to have bumped off this next one, which I would have always said was my favorite song on this album, maybe still is. This is track four called Little Round Mirrors. If you're changing your pick on, on favorite song, I'll keep this as mine. Uh, I think, <laughs> you know, there's so many good songs in this album, but Little Round Mirrors really stands out to me. From the music to start that really drew me into the, the mental imagery of that opening stanza, of, you know, being on the floor with the box springs and the mattress and the door slightly ajar. And from afar, you know, the rhyming there, you can hear the bands practicing. That just put me in that space right away from the get-go. To steal one of Trevor's terms, he, he likes to talk about a song being perfect, and, and I think this is pretty close. I, I am sorry to do this, but I, I have to agree with you. <laughs> I, I think this one is about as close to perfect as we ever got. It's, um, yeah. it's not as maybe distinctive as some of our other songs, but like one of the things we always, always, always were reaching for was to do one of those big music and to do it in a way that avoided the worst parts of that effort like to have it be grand without being grandiose or to have it be stately but not bombastic all the best versions of that thing that certain songs really really just have i can't imagine we ever could have gotten any closer to that than this song the french horn and love that part you know falsetto and the chorus i always had a real soft spot for our the bridges in our songs. For some reason, we found that they were really important. A lot of times, you know, I think that people think of the song as like the verse and the chorus, and then yeah, yeah, they throw in that little, the middle eight bit, but then they get back to the final chorus. And it's, it's one of the few like things that I never shy away from feeling good about, about our band from those days was like, you know, we had good, good bridges. <laughs> um, but the yeah. bridge in this song to me is like, it's probably the best one we ever did the way it ramps up to the climax that is the last chorus or whatever. It's just, I don't know, I'm really like, I have no criticisms of this song at all. I love it. It's 
been one of my favorite ones when I've seen you guys play it live, too. There's, there's just something about it. Having that French horn, which I don't know that I ever got to see that live, but oh, yeah. you're right, to have that in the bridge. You know, it's funny, when you were talking about the Turtles as being an influence, yeah. I would have never put the Turtles and Harvey Danger as an influence, but now I'm hearing that, and especially, again, on the bridge, the ba-ba-ba-ba. Yeah. You know, I can I can hear that similarity on this one as well. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the Turtles are great. They are super underrated. I always respond to, to bands that were that were not cool. Those guys weren't cool looking in the context of the '60s. They were kind of dumpy and but happy together. It is so it is it corresponds so exactly to my feeling about Flagpole Sitter that like I feel like those two songs are an A and B side of a certain kind of cultural mm, yeah. thing. Just the like when that song comes on, I am powerless to change the station or like I I. I it's so amazing. But then there are other singles and there are other their record tracks, like they're way more interesting than they get credit for. And there are a bunch of bands sort of from around that era that if you if you just sort of go along with what people say, then you sort of you miss out on so much. And I probably didn't fully appreciate that until I was in a band that had that exact experience. But you know, having the big hit song exposed us to a lot of people and most of them had no interest in anything else that we did um but a few of them obviously did that particular sort of shelf of cult status is um i'm pretty i'm pretty happy to be on that shelf This is another thing I liked about like about Harvey Danger is I listened to this song for years before I thought of what a little round mirror was. Yeah. And then one of these days it just kind of dawned on me and the, the same thing happened with a buddy of mine that is a huge Harvey Danger fan. We were watching the movie Vertigo together mm-hmm. and we're watching yeah. it and kind of like looking back at each other, wait, Carlotta Valdez, you know, just kind of putting it all together. Yeah. And that was this aha moment. And it puts you in the time, of course, when it was written. It's it's a CD. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it didn't in any way occur to me that we were in the twilight of the CD when, sure, I mean, sure. I, maybe it occurred to me in the sense that I didn't accept it because I just didn't feel like, it didn't ever seem real to me that people wouldn't want to possess the thing that the music was on and that and that you know menus of digital files in a you know on a hard drive or now of course on a streaming service would be sufficient for people to kind of like express their love of the song or the record or the band to me i mean i think to really to everyone who ever was a big music fan having the artifact it was an extension of your love for it. you had to have it so that you always had access to it but also so that you could sort of like see some expression of the thing that was inside you for it to be tangible and to mm-hmm. be on you know like on a rack with a bunch of other ones that whole element of self-expression or that relationship between the listener and the maker it's not entirely disappearing because they somebody figured out that People would buy vinyl records even if they didn't listen to them. 
but they would <laughs> they, they in a way make a much better like souvenir for people but you know that was also when the song was written was right in the heyday of burned cds i embraced those but i never stopped buying them and like i know my archive wasn't diminished for a long time but the subject of the song is the way that you can sort of dive into your love of music and music culture too much for your own like good and that you can i met lots of people who and maybe even have been that kind of person that like their their desire to be one with the culture of music that was so exciting them led them to make you know damaging choices and to let, like led them like in a way the expression of the self or like the quest to express the self was the thing that like kind of destroyed the self it, it, not totally destroyed but you know like the the thing that made you feel like you found yourself was the very thing that made you you know sort of lose yourself too and that was that's kind of what that was about bring bring home watch them go about that too i mean with two of us that are just like pouring over music and just love talking about it and you know today being a great example of that line at the end of murdering your time in, in cold blood just yeah. thinking about all the other things that i probably could or should be doing this is important to me of course to to be um a part of myself too and, and but at the same time it's like you saw me holding that little baby a second yeah. ago you know those things like that where i i, I think about that line and go okay I actually need both of these things, but how do I, how do I hold both of those things together? Yeah, I mean, it was also the thing of people, you know, defining themselves with, you know, in sort of cliques and factions of people who, you know, they did like this band or they didn't, but they didn't definitely like this band or they would, you know, fly across the country to see this show by this band that you know no more than a thousand people in the world knew about but then they sort of sort of like outsourcing your identity to these strangers essentially who stood on a stage and very interesting process that i have definitely been been part of but i but i knew some people who were well further down the road of that mm -hmm. than i ever was the, on the climax, you know, I, I feel like I grasped that part of it, but I've never really fully been able to unpack that part about the shooting star is. I, I feel like I could think about it from a couple different perspectives. Mm -hmm. A shooting star is a little piece of cosmic debris desperately wanting to
Well, I think it's two things. One is, I don't remember where I heard that about shooting stars, but you know, when you think of a shooting star because of what it's called, you think of this, you know, an actual star shooting across the sky and that's how it's always depicted in like animation. But of course it can't be that because a star doesn't really, that's not the experience of a star. So it's just like this little, it's a little fragment. And as music culture kind of got more, you know, the mass audience kind of splintered. And so what it wound up being was that there were a lot of little big audiences. And there were a lot of artists who sort of would appeal to one little group of people, essentially. That process has continued so much that there's the, the famous Andy Warhol quote that, you know, I believe in the future, everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. That is now that became such a common phrase that people now just say 15 minutes of fame and they mm. treat it like that's, you know, well, we all get our 15 minutes of fame. We all deserve our 15 minutes of fame, which isn't what he was saying. He was saying that in the future, the fame process will be accelerated so much that like, yes, there will be lots of people being, you know, like standing in line for this fame moment. But then the, um, there's a songwriter guy named uh, Momus. His idea was to change the Andy Warhol quote, just to, he wanted to change the word um, minutes to people. So I believe in the future, everyone will be famous for 15 people. And that is sort of what it's mm. like now. Mm. I like regionalism. I like it when a band is kind of big in whatever, the Midwest or the Northwest or the South or whatever. And that people outside those groups could, they might've heard of them, I'm never going to really know what it felt like for that band to kind of be special. It's one thing for a band to be special to its group of followers, but then there's another level after which like people sort of, they want to sort of invest the regionally popular artist with all the trappings of sort of a globally famous artist. And mm -hmm. so in a way they're missing the thing that makes it beautiful, which is like, no, they're not like, it's not about being, not to go back to the 90s too much, but it's not about being a rock star in the classic mold. It's about like, no, this is sort of, we are celebrating the thing that is good in that, but we're eschewing the things that are, you know, lame about it. So I just, I don't know. I saw a bunch of people who were so into bands that they were like competitively into these kind of small bands that they would, their competition extended to how close they could get personally to them or how much they could invest them with the idea that they're like geniuses like on the order of mozart or something meanwhile they're playing to 127 people in you know winooski vermont on a tuesday i'm not condemning it at all i'm just noticing this weird thing that the impulse to to make people into stars and objects and like symbols is just as strong on a kind of individual level as it is on a massive I wanted to ask about one one part of the song, and maybe the lyrics answer answer this question. Uh, by the end, in, in that uh, the person is dreaming of a day that they can find something they they can love as much as their their little round mirrors, their music, or that they can find someone who will love them as much. So, I guess the obvious answer would be that it's centered around love. But this idea that there's a hole in the middle that you can't seem to fill is that supposed to be the the obvious answer or the theme of the song that this person is looking for something outside their music or is it more just metaphorically representing that there's this void 
in life. This person is trying to figure out their identity or what they want or who they are. And there's some sort of emptiness that, you know, it's not obvious how you're supposed to fill that to get rid of it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's that it's the latter bit. Like the, I was, there was one person I was thinking of a lot when I was writing these lyrics and somebody I met while touring and the person that's so much invested in being a, a devout fan of set of groups and artists it almost became like um, a costume or like armor that they would wear to get through life. There is a way that that is very satisfying because it's, you can go to the show, you can buy the record, you can meet the singer or writer or whatever drummer, and you can meet other people who share your affinities. But at a certain point, like the band's going to break up or the tour's going to get canceled or it's almost a stand in for a self, you know? you can feel like it is an expression of your ultimate self, but really it's not. I mean, it, it, it might be, but it also might not be. There's more satisfying and deeper and richer work to be done to figure out kind of an authentic self. These are all the things that are sort of swirling around in it, but it's much to do about like what being a fan, how some, how being a fan of something relates to your identity. It's a bit of a fragile identity as well. If I mean, if that's all you have, if you're, labeling yourself and you're represented and you're wearing that that on your sleeve that i am i am this this fan of this band and mm-hmm. then like you said if the band breaks up or maybe your taste in music changes or something right or, you know you, then you're like well well who am i if i'm not a a fan anymore you know yeah i mean <laughs> i built so much of my life around this it's not even me it's not even like something i created i just kind of latched onto somebody else's project or what you know what happens when you when the band gets really huge or, or, you know, like that still happens sometimes that people kind of go from being a small phenomenon to being much bigger or what Mm. happens when you, when it's five years later and you put on the record and it doesn't mean anything to you. Like you can't, you don't feel it at all, but you've, you know, you've jumped in the vat of dye. (laughs) You are, you are (laughs) totally stained with it. You have tattoos and t-shirts and all that shit. So like, yeah, that's a, but that's the thing you can only really know from experiencing it. Oh. I think the the most close firsthand experience I've seen, or not, it's not firsthand experience, secondhand, just observed this would probably be, and this just came up because I think yesterday was five years to this day that I went to a Dead & Company concert. Mm-hmm. John Mayer is, is filling in for Jerry Garcia now or two and with them. And I got to see all the deadheads firsthand yeah. and met a lot of, met a lot of people and they got the tattoos and they got the stories. And it's like for some of these people that I met and it was, it was really cool, but like, that's, that's who they are. Yeah. Like even, even to this day, that's still who they are. Like, Oh yeah. And then they're so proud of it because they were one of those people that's who they are. They, they are the band. They're the fans. Yeah. Um, and I like, I say this as someone who is a, like, I'm pretty devout in my fandom, mm-hmm. but like, yeah, the guy, the people who like effectively either dropped out of life or built their life around following the dead. I, you know, I say this as crazy. one who <laughs> only grudgingly was able to like hear the good stuff in the grateful dead, but jam, like jam based music improvisation based music just has never it's never been for me so I, it's harder to grasp even why but there is all i also <laughs> do see the i do see the beauty in the sense of like 
they want to they had an experience that was so powerful that they wanted it to last forever so they wanted it to never end and mm-hmm. even after jerry died they still couldn't let that go the grateful dead is still a band but the fact that you could replace jerry garcia with john mayer that says it all you know like yeah i can't yeah. think of, i mean that's how much they want it yeah the, to hear the songs and the music and just to have a space to uh re-experience you know what what their identity is so based on yeah i find that um i want to see the beauty in it still <laughs> i have seen the beauty in it but i yeah. like right now if pressed i would say that that just doesn't sound very good to me at all yeah um, I, see, I see what you're saying but if i were the band i would probably yeah. feel very differently about it well that's a great song i, I think we should move yeah. on to <laughs> yeah what song are we talking about <laughs> <laughs> Only if we want to finish by Monday. Some good tangents. Exactly. <laughs> All right. This is the last song on side A. This song is called Happiness Writes White. Happiness Writes White, I think, such a clever way of having a song entirely about how you could never write a song like this. And what a sweet love song this is. Yeah, I really like this song. This is the one that for sure gets the closest to that um, zombies vibe that I was so eager to somehow attain. But um, the origin of it was that the woman I had been involved with for a long time, sort of she noticed that... (laughs) Every time I wrote a song that referred to her or to our relationship or like anything like that, really almost at every one of my attempts at writing about love or romance or relationships, it's all, it was always about how difficult they were, how complicated they were, or how, you know, like frustrating or unsatisfying. There was always the sort of, always highlighting the, the, complexity of it and at one point she was like why don't you ever write a song about how nice it is or how like how good it feels or the you know the good part um she was essentially saying why don't you ever write a love song for me and I believe that she was talking about a lot more than songs (laughs) but I did I felt well you know that's a totally legitimate thing for her to ask for and to want and so I just did like I tried to push everything else to the side and just write a thing about how much I was, how much in love I felt with her and, or how, you know, how much I appreciated her. I meant it, but I also still felt like it just doesn't, that's not my subject in this particular way. There may be a way to do it. And I had tried before. And the reason that I didn't ever do it before is that it's fucking hard. It's really hard to write that kind of thing and it you know musically has to make sense and contextually has to make sense and also like this isn't just my little private thing it's like i am writing things that the other guys in the band have to stand next to when we're playing that like i was not shy about telling her how i felt but but that's different from what she was asking for and so I felt like that was the 
the difficulty of doing that was the subject, but also it was a good vehicle for like investing the song with stuff about about her specifically and about us specifically. And, you know, it felt really good and really like truly earnest and truly honest and like pretty close to autobiography. And then, you know, we broke up <laughs> really shortly after it. And so that, you know, that was, you know, another interesting little wrinkle. Mm -hmm. But the song is an expression of real deep and abiding fondness I have for her. And like we were together for a period of time that was sig really significant. And we that will always be true. I will wish her the very best. I tried to put it into As the song goes into details about it, I tried to put it into words, but they felt like mistakes. Did you try to write a love song in other versions that didn't come together before you kind of thought, well, this is this is the song. The song is about how I can't yeah. do this. Tons of times. There's a song on the first Harvey Danger album on Where Have All the Merrymakers Gone called Old Hat. That okay, is, so that's I was going to bring that up too. I, um, I was wondering if that was the same person in mind when you said oh, that's old hat I'm so happy how do you write about that yeah it, it was although that also that was that song when I when we first started working on that song it was sort of about someone else but then it was then it wound okay. up being yeah. about this person and so yeah there is an interesting little bridge across our relationship of those two songs mm -hmm. happiness writes white is sort of the that's the epilogue to it you know Got it. Yeah. Okay. I'm glad that I, I picked up on that then. I, I wonder if that was coincidence. Yeah. When I first heard this, the music made me think of like the opening to a, to like a family sitcom. It <laughs> could be... <laughs> kind of like an intro into this show and then to hear that it was surrounding a 10-year relationship of yeah. ups and downs and all, all the in-betweens and trying to figure out life together. That's really funny. Um, I mean, <laughs> it I, sure could have been. it's probably the flute sound that, that maybe Possibly. suggests that, but that's a, it's a yeah. Mellotron flute. It's the same flutes that are in Strawberry Fields Forever. I might have okay. that wrong, but it's, I mean, it is a Mellotron. Songs. But yeah, the thing I like about it is that there's no even though there's like some humor in the song and there's a certain amount of like, I still managed to like sneak in, the, smuggle in the idea that it's still hard to be in a relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But there's really no, like the thing that you were describing earlier of trying to somewhat distance yourself from the, the real feeling with humor. There's, there really isn't mm -hmm. any of that in this. There's, there's yeah. humor, but it, yeah. it the kind of humor that enhances and em embraces the main theme rather than trying to kind of undercut mm -hmm. it in some way, which is exactly yeah, what yeah. she was talking about. I 
I kind of looked a, a step beyond the challenges of writing a song and thought about the musical ideas or representations of, of how difficult re- relationships can be, not being able to find the right chords or the, mm-hmm. the right word. And you, you had talked about writing some songs about the difficulties of relationships, the struggles, the, you know, the, the fights, the challenges, the you know, sadness and all that. Sometimes it's easier. It's easier to talk about that. It's easier to find the right words, even in my own experiences. Maybe this isn't true for everybody. Hopefully not. Hopefully other people find it easier to talk about the, the good times and the happy moments and stuff. But sometimes yeah. you get in a fight and kind of let out all those emotions. You kind of feel mutual in a way and they're not totally real or authentic but they're just sort of in the heat of the moment but if you got to tell somebody how much they mean to you how much how much you love them and and you got to find the right way to do that it it feels like there's more weight to it it feels a lot more difficult than just getting upset and talking about like well you didn't take the trash out the other day right if you really want to express something positive and and show that you know it's different it's and i wonder if that's partly why it's hard to write a song about that think of the times that you've been in a relationship and the person you're with really just wants to know that they still matter to you and you could have said it a thousand times like you Mm. could have said it that very day but whatever was going on between you or just with them it's something that they need they feel Mm -hmm. wobbly for whatever reason or they feel unworthy or they feel like disconnected or like a million ways you can feel Mm -hmm. that the right kind of affirmation can, you know, that's the part of the power of the relationship is knowing that that person is for you and that, you know, that they really care about you. That can really like make all the other stuff of life seem totally fine. Um, and, mm-hmm. and the absence of it can make any other part of life feel totally meaningless. It does matter how you say it. You know, it's very easy for someone to be like, okay, bye, I love you. You know, like you're saying your lines, but then when pressed, it's really, um, it can be really hard to say what the person means to you because you've said it so many times or you've, you know, you've like demonstrated it so many times, but not only do you know that they need to hear it or want to hear it, but like you then actually really want to like reach deep and, and like, say it and really show exactly. them yeah. um and it's uh it's an interesting dilemma to be in when the thing yeah. the thing you mean the very most sounds insincere you know coming out of you because you're not really connecting to that yeah. but being really like being present and not being fixated on on what may come or what isn't right or any of that stuff that's it's so important i've learned it now by totally blowing it in the past but it makes me better equipped for a real you know relationship of substance now which i'm very happy and lucky to be in Well, I think at this point we will flip the record over <laughs> and we'll start side Jean-Jay two. <laughs> the first song on the second side is called War Buddies. Oh, yeah. The better to form a song friend, I 
Buddies has a lot of layers to it, and maybe one that I've never fully grasped. What can you tell me about this song? <laughs> um, I can't tell you too much. <laughs> it's significant that it was when it was 2004. Everyone was talking about war all the time because the country had just entered into a totally indefensible war. And a, and a couple of them. What people thought was true in 2003 or four or whatever is insignificant compared to what we now know is you know true or was true. But it's really not about war at all. It really is just a metaphor. My go-to phrase when people ask me what songs are about or what my the seven people who still occasionally ask me what my work is about <laughs> is uh, it's just about the limitations of male friendship specifically and the way you can really be there, like really be close to somebody and still totally, totally let them down and totally burn them and totally hurt them. And, and both sides of the friendship can do that. But really it is about that feeling of being, feeling like you really were there for someone who had been there for you too, but then just wasn't there for you anymore. It's a thing that I've experienced with several of my really intense close friendships. All my, all my closest male friendships have always been super complicated and fraught with tension. And, you know, we'll go months and sometimes even years without speaking to each other and then see each other. And it's like nothing ever changed. That's all been, you know, really really just perfect connection but then other times we'll see each other all the time and there will be this undercurrent of resentment and even it feels like hatred mm. and it's just i don't know people get really people are really um romantic and sentimental about friendship i value friendship very much but it's not without its pitfalls let's be I never picked up on this one being about friendship between two men, but I'm just reading the words again and kind of putting that together. Yeah, I'll have to go back and look at that with a different perspective. I, I had to chuckle at the line, but now in light of that context, it's rather serious. If nobody tries too hard to kill you, I got your back. Yeah. And I was, I was thinking in, in a war sense that maybe this was a song about somebody who's found themselves at war but they're really not all that into it they don't want to be there and yeah you know if somebody doesn't try to kill you too much maybe i'll defend you but like i really don't want to be here kind of thing so i, I kind of thought it was like a vaguely anti-war song but but then when you when you talk about the friendships yeah it's kind of like sometimes people will say oh yeah i got your back man like yeah like you're great friends but as long as it's not too too much of a task for them like as long as it's yeah, we'll stay in touch right. like, as long as it's not too difficult for them to, you know, find the time to talk to you. As, or, long, as, it doesn't, as long as it doesn't interrupt my, you know, yeah. my nap time. That's exactly it. I love the, uh, you've got guns, now's the time for sticking, you know, to, <laughs> just a different way of saying sticking yeah. to your guns. I thought that was really cool as well. 
Can you help me unpack the line about the guy singing into the tape recorder at the end? Um, I don't think I can because I don't think I know. Like, yeah, it's, yeah. It, I mean, it may be a, it's not like a personal detail too much other than it's a way of like, probably it's a way of diffusing the metaphor a little bit because I would say the lyrics are pretty thoroughly committed to this metaphor. And this is a way of like, it's the, it's the little glimpse that really, you know, it only looks like a war scene. In fact, it's a, it's a reflection about friendship, perhaps even between people who play music. I thought it was cool how you how you flipped that common phrase of there are no atheists in foxholes to yeah I'll be I'll be your atheist in in your foxhole yeah there's a lot of little cool tidbits in this that line that's a good example of a line that probably was um in a notebook for I don't know 10 years or five years before I Mm -hmm. found a song to put it in I just it's exactly the kind of like that is one line that has no useful application unless it's in the midst of some other thing. Sure. And I was still thinking of the war reference. Yeah. That, and maybe there was there was some some religious context in there that, you know, even when you're in the trenches when when things are getting rough, you might still not believe in some type of higher power. But now when I think about the friendship component to it, I, I don't know, is that supposed to mean that, you know, when times are tough when you're with a friend that that maybe you would remember the reasons why you're together. You would see that higher purpose and uh, come back together. But this is kind of an expression of like, well, I'll be that person that doesn't believe because like I've come to my wits end or, you know, come to a different realization. I think it's about how deep friendship and loyalty allow you to be for another person what no one else will or can be that's one of the ingredients in being someone's like really really close friend is you answer a need that the other person Mm. didn't even maybe necessarily even know that they had that says there are no atheists in foxholes that means that in the midst of all this heavy bombardment people can't help but be returned to this primal state in which of course they must believe in god because it's the only possible way they're going to get out of this situation and in this context in the song i think it's in this particular foxhole of life where we're bombarded by all sorts of stuff i will be Mm -hmm. for you and you will be for me by extension the the one who doesn't abandon the important principles and i will really have Mm -hmm. your back that's what it means to me yeah because sometimes you got to be for for a friend who they don't really want you to be necessarily or right who you don't necessarily want to have to be for them either but that's what that's what makes you friends and not just acquaintances or people sharing some time together you actually care to go that extra step and yeah sometimes you got to do some hard stuff totally
move on to track six. This song is called Picture Picture. Picture Picture was left off that original lineup of songs on the download, so this one came out on the Kill Rock Stars version. Was this song written later? It was on the bonus disc when we put it out ourselves initially. That's right. And I think that it was just like the way we felt like we wanted the album to be was that it would be conspicuously less rock-based than the previous two albums. And this song, of course, we really loved it. We thought it was really fun, but it also, there's a little bit of a like, it's sort of musically in character. Somehow it seems implausible that we would be playing a song that has this kind of swagger in it. Like not quite glam rock, but kind of that 70s pop. Hey, look at that dog. Uh, <laughs> That's Bowie. That, oh, nice. That's That's Bowie. 70s, <laughs> 70s-ish thing. A little bit grazing the hem of the T-Rex garment or something. And it just felt like that was the one that seemed less in keeping with songs like the ones that we've all just been discussing for like side A. Yeah. But then when we put the album out and people listened to it and we lived with it for a while, the thing that I felt was that it needed a more, it needed a little, just another boost of rock song. Cream and Bastards Rise fills a particular slot and there's no there's no corresponding anything in the back half of the album and it felt like it kind of it didn't run out of gas so much as it became somewhat monotonous or ran that risk or we worried that someone might feel that way or something so when it came time for the Phil Rockstar's version to come out which we were super psyched about it just felt like making that switch was you know it doesn't actually change anything really because the songs are all available if anybody wants them, but it did kind of make the album feel more like an album. I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it balances that first half with a little bit more of that punch. I had to reference the, the live version of this song, because I remember you have to tell me if I remember it right. Was it a whiteboard that you would have where you would write the call and answer piece? Yeah. It was a little um, cardboard sign um, that I wrote the words to the refrain on. And it was just because, like, for whatever reason, the other guys in the band just didn't feel super comfortable doing backing vocals. They would do them sometimes, but they would also just like, like, we'd agree that they were going to do them. And then the show would be happening and I would be singing and I would look over and I would be like, where's the backing vocal? And I would look over and they just wouldn't be singing. You know, I've seen that happen (laughs) in many, many, many bands, whatever they don't want to do. They just don't do it, and then they hope you don't ask them about it. But this song in particular, it's part of the reason why it's sort of a less than totally satisfying song for me is that if you do it live, it, the song doesn't work without the call and the response. I mean, it's not even call and response. It's I say a thing, and then the backing ground, background vocal echoes it. So we needed the audience to do it for us, and because it's a, a series of words that you wouldn't necessarily just remember or even hear very clearly if I was singing it. I held up the signs as a sort of prompt. So it's like, it's, I get the picture and then the audience goes, picture. And then, you know, I think, yeah. uh, what is it? Uh, 
I think I, I know. know. No, no. Whatever yeah. it is, the the the. I just held them up, sort of like in a uh, little bit of an homage to the subterranean homesick blues video thing. That ah, okay. Did. I mean, okay. Not yeah. not yeah. really, but um, he did it first, and then I did it. Is that how it went? Yeah, okay, that was yeah, the order yeah. of things. <laughs> just to clarify. <laughs> Another one where there's like little tidbits of things I had to look up, like the dog in the manger. Yeah, I, I didn't know what that phrase meant. I I pictured it as like a fox in the mm-hmm. hen house or something. It's like a something. It's a little but... bit like that, but it's sort of it's when you are guarding something that you don't want, or or you may not be like available for, say, I don't know, a relationship with someone, but then you you sort of try and discuss discourage or disparage anyone else from having it it's that sort of i don't i don't want it or i can't have it but that doesn't mean i'm gonna let anyone else have it i love that there's a specific phrase for that i I would have never thought that 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 was an actual i know and i was um i didn't know it either until i was accused of being that in some context i don't even remember what the context was but you know, the person was like, don't be a dog in the manger. And I was, you know, <laughs> that was fantastic. That's an insult. But I'll take you, it. Yeah. I'm taking that. <laughs> I'm putting that in the notebook. <laughs> I also love the ending of this one, just how kind of maniacal it gets at the end and then yeah. abrupt ending of this one. Yeah, all the little, all the little bits. I mean, it was just fun. It's, it was always our experience with this band that you always wished you had one more really good, a rocker, another rocker. When you're playing a show, you always want that. No matter how much you start off wanting to like be impressive or grown up or mature or whatever, by half an hour into the show, you wish all you had were three minute like rock and roll blast your face off songs we haven't really talked about the meaning of the song yet Uh, trevor and i were discussing some of the the characters and who said what my general take on it was that there was this guy or could be a girl who met somebody they got got to flirting and and he or she one of them thought that was more than it really was Mm -hmm. and the other one maybe didn't uh and then you know got this big idea in their head of oh we're gonna be a, a couple or something big is coming of this. Maybe they got their hopes up too soon. I, I connected that with, right. um, you were like a gateway drug. Like th- they took their first hit and all of a sudden they were an addict right. um, on this person. But then they drive by the house and it's late at night and you see somebody else going in. And so I, I presume that's them finding out that, hey, this person's not exclusive with me. They got somebody else and maybe I had this whole thing wrong. Yeah, exactly. Behind the curtain.
that's basically it, where you, you know, like, it's a continuing theme, I find, in these songs. I don't know if I was conscious of it or not, but um, I, I am now. Um, just the, uh, <laughs> you know, like, you meet someone and you really like them, and and they maybe even really like you, but then you go off into totally divergent experiences. And you can conjure up the whole future relationship in your mind. And like, yeah, and mm-hmm. then we'll be like, we'll just live in a straw hut in Tahiti and it'll be great, and, you know, whatever. And meanwhile, they're mm-hmm. like, oh God, I still, you know, like I have, th- whatever their experience is, it's necessarily just their experience, you know? And you are trying to kind of invent a world for both of you without consulting the other person, then that mm-hmm. only leads to, you know, misery. And there's a certain amount of like, when you find out that the other person doesn't feel exactly the same way you do, even though they couldn't, there's a certain amount of like, oh, well, it's fine, I guess. I got a picture, you know, like, yeah. that's fine. It's, mm-hmm. it's really just like about that sort of self-pity and id kind of mm-hmm. level of, of uh, you know, when it doesn't quite work out. And that's the person who wasn't totally into it coming back saying, why, why do you insist on being such a girl about it? Yes. You, know, you said, we hope we could still be friends. I doubt it. Yeah. Kind of like, yeah, you're making this way more than it, than it actually was, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. But yeah, there, I mean, but that is true how there's that disconnect in the early stages of a relationship. Nobody really knows what the other person is thinking. So it's all kind of a cat and mouse kind of game. And you can't say too much because you don't mm-hmm. want to be the one who blows it by saying too much or being too right. like being too explicit yeah. about a thing that is not like there's a yeah. time when people are ready to have that conversation and mm-hmm. then there is a huge amount of time before that. And yeah. that's the, you know, and that to me was all that was a, you know, that was a thing I did wrong on many occasions mm-hmm. um i think we've yeah. all oh yeah that. yeah I'm right there with yeah. you you want to you want to express yourself but you don't want to do it too early and be vulnerable because that's risky but then if you don't say something soon enough that's a risk as well so absolutely and i mean how, I have, how do you figure it out i've had the experience of saying something really effusive about someone that made them like but basically if i hadn't said it chances are they would have gone on really liking me and liking the thing we were doing but then Hmm. by my saying that it was sort of like oh like it just it was so was such a turnoff to them that you know that was the end Hmm. the thing that i latch onto about this song is that there are two pun based phrases in it that i am super proud of and really love and that's what the song's really about it's about finding a way to have the love that dare not shut its mouth and um, uh, the winter of our disconnect, which are like, again, two phrases that were hanging around based on existing phrases, one from Oscar Wilde and one from Shakespeare, that I just thought it's the combination of high and low that I really enjoy. Okay, well, I think that sums up track number seven. 
another great song. We're ready to move on to track eight now. This one is titled Cool James. This is a really unique song, I think. My favorite line is, you spent half your life trying to get a pause in edgewise. Just made me think of somebody that maybe is feeling a little socially awkward and wanting to talk to make things feel a bit more comfortable and, and then hoping at some point they can be comfortable with a pause yeah. or silence. Yeah, I, I mean, my tendency is always to keep talking. If you're so excited when you find it, when you meet someone that makes you feel really heard and see somebody really gets you and feels like they're the one you've been looking for you've been so lonely but you you then find this person you're so excited it leads you to both be talking all the time and like really it's just so the energy is so yeah. like ebullient or whatever and then you know you find you can't even you don't even want to take a breath because you just want to keep talking to the person you've spent half your life talking trying to This is the oldest one, I think. Oh, okay. This actually predates Where Have All the Merrymakers Gone. Oh, no it way. Was, it was a completely different song. It could not have been much more different. It was a really like right straight down the middle kind of rock and roll kind of power pop song. Ladies Love Cool James was the, I put that line in almost every song we wrote for many years, just trying to get one that would sort of stick just because I love I love that that's what LL Cool J stands for that's, I've always thought that was so good um, <laughs> I I didn't know that until yeah. now or until yeah. Trevor, Trevor told me about that so that's yeah. pretty cool but it doesn't like this is the one this is the one example on the album of where like the sort of discursive style of writing lyrics that I was really stuck on trying to do in the like around the period of our first album because I thought that was better than the way I did things normally. It's a bit of a jumble, but it it hangs together as a way of evoking what it is to be really excited about something or someone new. Yeah, there's a lot of really cool lines in there, like swallow poison tongues, like maybe trying not to gossip yeah. or say too much in general. And then I guess oppose your thumbs would just be like maybe trying to show that you're more a more evolved person or that you're <laughs> oh, yeah. somebody that's got a little bit more maturity than you feel like you should have or something. Yeah. I mean, I think it's sort of like um, swallow poison tongues, oppose your thumbs. It's just when you are alone, you find yourself saying things that are so like ugly and horrible sometimes. And you find yourself sort of falling into these bad, misanthropic, negative ways that yeah, I mean, partly it's a reflection of who you are, but partly it's a reflection of how how upset you are that you're, you know, that you're not finding fulfillment and companionship. And, you know, pose your thumbs is like the only thing you can take any solace in is at least you're, at least you're a human being, you know, which isn't that mm -hmm. great in mm -hmm. some ways, but like at least you can, <laughs> you don't have to rely on your prehensile tail to get, uh, up into the tree and you know believe in nothing that's like that those three things are very much sort of the you give up hope if you go long enough without finding someone who 
uh, you know, that you really dig and who really digs you. It's, it's the best feeling. It is just the best feeling. This is a song that is trying to evoke how it feels to feel the best feeling. I love this song. I can't defend it exactly. You know what I mean? Like, I, I just, this is the one that mm-hmm. partly it's because I think Aaron, some of Aaron's very best work is on it. And his oh, little yeah, bass lead yeah. right in that sort of middle bit before the big ending, that do 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 Uh-huh, I, uh-huh. It, it comes yeah, into my yeah. mind all, all the time. It's not, you know, it's not like virtuoso work. It's just so him. Like, he's the only human being who would have come up with that part. And so it is, it's like that, you know. There's little touches of him throughout this that... You know, it really evokes him. Another line I've had for many years and tried to get into a song was the um, Lawrence of Arabia, Sir Alex said to Peter, whatever you is beyond evaluation, which is literally, that is the line that Sir Alec Guinness says to Peter O'Toole in, you know, toward the end of, uh, of Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence of Arabia, Sir Alec said to Peter, what I owe you is beyond evaluation. What I owe you is beyond evaluation. It's such a, I just think those are really powerful words. And that is exactly how I feel when I, when I, when I have, uh, you know, when you find your person, the fact the fact that they even exist makes you feel like it makes you feel grateful. I mean, I certainly feel that way in the relationship I'm in now. I just couldn't even believe that she was there all along. That's that's beautiful. Th- thank you for, for hashing that out. Well, should we move on to the last couple tracks? Yeah. Track nine is called What You Live By. This song I have personal memories with, Sean. I remember living in the Fremont area, and I would take 99 <laughs> as a little shortcut back through to where I was living with my roommate who was going to yeah. UW. Kind of like watching mm-hmm. Vertigo put it together as I was driving by Marco Polo <laughs> and then reading about the history of Kurt that would kind of escape there. I think it was room 226 that was yeah. his favorite. So just kind of thinking about that and having that aha moment was a really cool connection to this song. And sometimes you hear a song and you just go right back to a particular place in time. And for me, I'm always on 99 driving home from school to my apartment yeah. that I lived at by the Marco Polo. Me up on 99 beneath the Marco That's great. I'm, that makes me really happy. It's- there are so many motels on 99 in that particular little area. And they were yeah, built yeah. for the World's Fair, 1962, I think, or before. That's why they're there. And they're still there. And they haven't, uh, most of okay. them have not been yeah. renovated or improved. 
or possibly even cleaned since the World's Fair, but it was to accommodate the huge number of tourists. I've never taken a room in any of those, but I also used to live up kind of on you know, lower Queen Anne. And so I, you know, passing by them, I always was struck by the many, many signs and how kind of out of time they are. You know, I had heard about the Kurt Cobain thing, but I also knew that Aaron was in that motel with someone else mm. and actually it was the other person who told me about it. He never actually mentioned it to me. But yeah, it's just a significant, I just think it's, I don't know, it's funny, a motel named Marco Polo. Yeah. <laughs> in a way, it's a, I think it's a bit of a failure on the record. But I always really liked it anyway. I actually wrote it with Aaron. It was, the I think, the first thing we ever wrote together, just the two of us. Oh, wow. Um, okay. That's yeah. special. Yeah, and it was, you know, he wrote it on guitar, not bass. And then Jeff, he liked, he said he liked the song, but he had this really strong vision for what, how he thought it should be rhythmically. Somehow we didn't notice that Jeff was playing it in one time signature and Aaron was playing it in another time signature. They're very similar. They don't conflict exactly, but they don't really lock in either. So the song is never fully together in that way. I don't think it harms it. And again, the words are sort of like, I guess they're, I'm not entirely sure that they sort of ring entirely true because they are sort it's sort of funny box of wine and hundred dollar car and all that stuff it's hyperbole i guess i mean this is about as low down of a scenario for you know how your life turns out be the one with a box of wine and a hundred dollar but i still i don't know I, there's something i like about it. It's, it i think it's like self-serious or it feels self-serious as opposed to serious it's interesting to hear you say that failure with it. And maybe you're talking more just about, like you said, there's a different time signatures or stuff from more on the mm -hmm. songwriting part that if you were really in it, you would notice I, those are things that didn't stick out right. to me. And so, you know, I just thought about what it was saying. And you really only have two directions that you can go in life in a, in a sense, if you think of things as binary in terms of you either do this or you do that. So there's only two, two choices. Yeah. But when you make one, you're saying no to the other right. one. And so you, you die by let you live by just means if you do one thing, you're sort of killing the option of the other thing, you know, two, two sides of a record mm -hmm. to play. That, that's it. And so I, I thought of that as whether it's a good or a bad decision, it's still the end of a different yeah. one. Always nothing or too much to say. Only so many sides of a record to play. Um, I also just, I mean, the phrase live by the sword, die by the sword is one of those ones that I've just heard all my life. And I mean, I, I, it makes sense. I get it. I just, you know, but then I just thought that kind of formula is true of many things. It goes back to identity, I guess, too. But like, if you're really committed to a certain kind of, you know, conviction about the way life should be or the way people should live their lives or whatever you might thrive from that you know at a certain time but then when times change you know the fact that you were so aligned with that is what's going to be your downfall something happens in the world and it's up to you to take a stand about like to say this is what's this is right and this is wrong and it, like there's there's only these ways of looking at things yeah and you're not, you know, you're just unlikely to continue to feel that way as you get older. 
I think that there's some piece of that that's in the song. That's not entirely it, but um, it's something like that. Talk about the lives we've led and count the reasons we're not dead, or maybe we could talk instead about the ways in which we are. I really like the, the line we can talk about the lives we've led and count the reasons we're not dead from a literal standpoint, or maybe we could talk instead about the ways in which right. we are, you know, figuratively, if you're drinking a box of wine <laughs> and you got a hundred dollar car and you're staying yeah. <laughs> at a crappy motel that's been abandoned since the sixties on the 99, yeah. you know, you might be alive, but are you really? Yeah. You know? you know, the context of this song was that the band had kind of ended. Uh, I had a, little variety show that I did at a club in Seattle called the Showbox. There's a downstairs lounge called the Green Room. And I did this show like mm-hmm. once a month. I only did it a few times. It was really fun. But I would have Aaron come and play stuff with whoever he was working with at the time. And uh, we thought we would write some music maybe for that. And this was one of the ones that came out of it. And it's such a like, it's an incredibly dour song with some, you know, like slightly more lighthearted kind of jokey lines at the front. I mean, I respond to that. I like it in other songs, but you know, I don't think it's like where I really come alive. Well, should we move on to the last song? Yeah. Yeah, this is another one of my favorites and a great way to end the album. Indeed. Track 10 is titled Diminishing Returns. returns like Shane says a really interesting way to end the album and the overall feeling or theme I got with this one was just kind of that at some point you kind of have to make peace with where you are and and who you are which there's some positivity and negative aspects of doing that you you have to say goodbye maybe to some of the idealism that you might have had but at the end of the day Mm -hmm. having some grounding reality is a good thing in its own sense so just balancing those two things, that's that's where I felt like the song was going. I mean, I think that is essentially it. In a weird way, it does go back to what we were talking about, you know, 12 hours ago at the beginning of this conversation. <laughs> Some people, they know what they want to be when they grow up and they set their course and go in that direction. And they are probably lucky. But then there are others of us who like, there's a bunch of things we would sort of like to do and we want to give them a give all of those things a chance and then with one of them but you know is more like bears more fruit or is, is more uh promising or rings more true then you go in that direction but you sort of are keeping options open and in that sense you are having it both ways like you, there's something you want but you're not limiting the possibilities of other things happening for you that's a pretty good way to go for a while. Farewell to the day have it in both ways. The booms and You eventually have to make choices. Otherwise, you 
will never actually finish anything. It's a trap that I have gotten into, and I know lots of people who have, where you just, in the absence of an actual direction, you know, you default to staying still. That is a very bad feeling, because then you feel like you have no option. That's the place I know a lot of people have wound up. Stuck in a fallback and fighting off a heart attack And you're so tangible like a nitroglycerin tablet under my tongue I think it's a really lovely song and it's melancholy, but it's also, it's not like crushingly sad. It's a little album closer, you know? And, it's, and it is especially sort of meaningful for us in the band because we had it both ways in that we were like, we're not really trying to be rock stars or a famous professional rock band or anything like that. We're still just some guys who, you know, wanted to play music and we're not really part of the industry or whatever. And then, of course, we're undoubtedly we were part of the industry because that's what we were doing with our lives. But we somehow, by not admitting that that was what was happening. We somehow sort of inoculated ourselves against the charges of trying too hard and failing. So it was like, if we failed, well, it's certainly not our fault because we weren't even doing it in the first place. So I guess the joke's on you. Uh-huh, yeah. That's a childish way of, uh, of thinking. And we are, you know, we are all guilty of it. And I was guilty of it. Populism, activism, urbanism, fail I like how there's the line when optimism fails and my cooler head prevails, I will meet you at the point of diminishing returns. But then later in the song, it changes to when pessimism fails and my cooler head prevails. So it made made me think of the common phrase that people will tell others, never get too high, never get too low. And what you were saying earlier when we were talking about social media and Facebook and and some people feeling so lonely and... and, uh, desperate and others looking like everything is perfect it's it's never that good and it's it's never that bad it's always kind of somewhere in the middle and when you have time to to think about things your cooler head will prevail and you'll kind of ground yourself and find yourself somewhere right somewhere in the middle or in whichever direction away from whichever extreme you were at you know when reality sets in i mean i was very um attached at that time to this idea that really all isms are dangerous because they're not about describing reality. They're about prescribing reality. Mm-hmm. And I still kind of basically think that, that it's sort of, it doesn't make sense to be a lot, like to align yourself with a certain kind of, a kind of fixed reading of whatever happens in the life and that you should in fact be available to receive new information and change what you thought was your ideology. I, I like ideology was the real enemy, regardless of almost what the ide- ideology was, because it was an attempt to put brackets around something that really can't be bracketed because it's, you, it, you don't know. I don't necessarily feel quite as strongly about that now because it's clear that being a total relativist about everything leads to this weird situation we're in now where a huge number of people in the world have just chosen to pretend that words don't have any meaning at all. And also it never even occurred to me that anyone would do that, but of course they would. And of course they did. 
I still feel pretty good about the like the, the isms that get tacked into this song. Uh, but like when those things that you like you designate yourself one of those things, but eventually you're going to run into a situation where those things just don't serve you. They don't apply. They're not, that's no longer true. This idea of cooler heads prevailing, meaning in a group of people, if cooler heads are going to prevail, somebody has to start by having a cooler head. And then diminishing returns is sort of like you keep bashing your head against the wall of, and eventually it's, you know, you're going to lose more than you gain by, you know, trying. That's not a thing to necessarily be afraid of. Failing is just failing. It's not the measure of the whole experience. There is a certain, I will admit that it's not like that uplifting, but there's a certain hopefulness in that, like as bad as things are, they're not as, they're really not that bad compared to real suffering that is all around us everywhere. Mm -hmm. And that like you get so wrapped up, one eye gets so wrapped up in one's own bullshit that you forget that really you are incredibly fortunate. I think that's in there somewhere. But it's also, I mean, there is something very Seattle in my feeling about that song. It's, it doesn't matter where you are, you will eventually hear someone say, yeah, I mean, they, this place is just not the same as it was when I was a kid or mm -hmm. during my glory days or whatever. And yeah, there, it's true. It's not, it's not the same, but like nothing has ever been the same, you know, in a, in a, in a yeah, healthy way. Yeah. Um, you know, the mm -hmm. Seattle of 1992 was not the same as the Seattle of 1982. And that's, you know, like there are probably, there were probably tons of people who when Seattle was having its kind of big celebrated boom, who were like, oh yeah, well, it's still, it's not as good as it was when nobody knew about it. That's the thing that everybody says about everything. It's not as good as it was. Maybe that's true, but it is the nature of society. It's the nature of civilization to change, um, to accommodate new and more people. It, doesn't, it just seems crazy to wind yourself up so much in worrying about that because everything is crumbling. Entropy is all around us. And it's not, it's not that bad. And it, in fact, it's kind of amazing that anything still exists. It's amazing that anyone is still mm -hmm. here, you know, considering the amount of basically murder that, you know, constitutes all human history. Yeah. And the fact that <laughs> we're true. all, you know, able to conduct ourselves with some kind of civility at all. It's like, God, it's so good. It's so good that we did that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that sums this one up really well. Yeah. I think that's just trying to balance this thing. I think it's, it's intoxicating to have uh Certainly, idealism can be intoxicating, and even even pessimism, in a way, can you know, you like you said, you feel like you can kind of like go like, oh, we weren't even really trying to do right. that anyway, or to to kind of look down your nose at a movement or a change or something, and like, ah, oh, you know, I I see through that. That's that's right. inauthentic. You know, I I see the real picture. But at the end of the day, like you kind of you do have to commit to something. You know, there there has right. to be some sort of footing to to stand on. So at the wherever you meet where those things start kind of crumbling away there's got to be something and i guess it, it's diminishing returns you're you're letting go of some of that idealism or or that intoxicating feeling of feeling like you know everything or or that there's a perfect way yeah 
or that somehow it's like a it's somehow noble or holy or something to to not to not have intention and to yeah, not yeah. Like, to not want yes something yeah. that that's the that's the one because I'm so I, it's the one for me because I'm totally susceptible to it. I am really, yeah, really yeah. susceptible to that. Like, hey, you know, I, I didn't even want it, but hey, look, here it is. Because it seems then like you are extra special. Mm-hmm. And the need yeah. to be extra special is a real frailty. You know, it's a real human yeah. weakness. It's certainly my big human weakness. Uh, I think I think we yeah, can all I think can of really, ways yeah. that that's true. Well, I, I wanted to mention just musically at the end of this, I, I think that maybe has some of the most interesting... The, the finishing touches that you put on this album and this song, I think, are unique to this, the outro to this uh, yeah. one. There's some panning and there's kind of some twinkling sounds. And I just wanted to ask you a little bit about how that came um, together. I'm so, I'm thrilled that you asked about it because I love it. Yeah. I did I had nothing to do with the creation of it. It was all Jeff. It was something Jeff did oh, in his okay. little apartment yeah. that he lived in on Capitol Hill. I can't remember exactly, but it was before we ever, uh, before we even embarked on making the record, as far as I know. He came up with it, and it's the kind of thing that I, you know, we always wish he would do more little cool things like that, and he just, you know, I'm sure he made Mm. it with the idea that we would, you know, replace it with kind of a better or more fully realized version of it. You know, uh, there was no, I just didn't feel like there was ever going to be a way to make a, it didn't need fixing. It was perfect as it was. And what was perfect about it was that it was so kind of like micro, like a toy box that had fallen open or a music box that had fallen open and just Mm -hmm. kept going on the flute. And I just thought it was lovely, beautiful textures, really pleasing sounds. And also like, of, vis- of like a-, a glimpse into Jeff, who admittedly was sort of hard to, he, was, he could be a little opaque. I'm sure he started it as a way of dealing with this song in particular. I don't think it was just like a standalone thing that happened to fit tonally. I think he made it and and then wanted to redo it or something. And then I really, really wanted to, it to be exactly as it was. And um, you know, guess who won that fight? It was me. <laughs> I'm glad you did. I, I think it's perfect the way it is. I can't imagine it being any different. And, you know, if you wrote it specifically for this song and it ended up being the last song, you know, I don't know which of those things came first. If he wrote it and he thought, well, that should be at the end. But if it didn't, how perfect that it ended up being the last little finishing touch. I completely agree. And I also, did you ever, have you heard, I would not ask this of someone who didn't declare themselves to be a big Harvey Danger fan, but um, did you ever hear the thing we put out called Dead Sea Scrolls? Oh yeah, of course. Uh So you know that the, there is a version of this song on there that was the origin of the song that didn't sound remotely like that. Yeah, completely different, yeah. You know, like a bad Weezer 
song. Like I, I I'm not a fan of Weezer, but like it it had that. It, I just mean that it had that kind of rough edge, or I don't even know. I really don't even know how to characterize it. I liked our that demo, yeah. but clearly that was not a song that you want to necessarily pursue into your life. So it got completely reconfigured, and the, I just kind of imported the lyrics. But that's a great example of how, you know, these things can kind of, they take such different forms. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a perfect example of that. Sean, I just wanted to thank you so much once again for being willing to go so deep on these songs. Obviously, these are songs, and this is an album I've been listening to for a lot of my life, and some of these songs have very personal meanings to me and memories associated with them. But just, yeah, I just wanted to tell you how much this has meant to me, and, you know, we, we put the podcast together because we love diving into music and to have somebody willing to go there with their own music like that. I appreciate that so much, um, and I just want to say we value your time, and, and uh, thank you for oh, being man. here. Oh, uh, man. I can't even begin to express how uh how good it feels to be reminded that there are people who have a relationship with these songs and that they mean something to other people because they mean a lot to me and i know they meant a lot to aaron and i know like they they were there it's important to you when you make a when you make a record because it's not finished until someone hears it hearing it is great but actually sticking with it and like having it stick with you like that's just it's just the best thing you could ever hope for that's good to hear that and and for me i'm i'm so glad uh you picked this album trevor Uh, unfortunately i was one of the the many who who only knew harvey danger by the song flagpole sit up but i'm i'm really glad that i that i know it now and and uh that we had this opportunity to bring you on the show um feel honored to be able to have this conversation with you and and hear hear more about the the backstories um to the song some of the deeper meanings and context that we didn't pick up on and excited to go back and listen again and and uh you know connect with it even more so so thank you for that i really appreciate it there's no way that i can be more sort of effusive about my like in my gratitude for your interest in it i don't have much of anything to gain anymore from any of this kind of these kind of conversations like in terms of what we can all sort of laughingly refer to as my career but it truly is as a source of deep pleasure and pride and gratitude for me to be able to even mention any of these songs these songs in particular with anyone and have them even know what the hell i'm talking about you know because like things, I didn't realize it then when I was younger because I felt like everything I loved would always be right there in the world. It would always be viewed as important or significant. It's not true. Things get forgotten and lost in the culture. And this is one of those things that, you know, it stays alive with the exact people who, who care about it. And to everyone else, it not only no longer exists, but it never existed. That's a weird thing to navigate. Well, you know, it's interesting hearing you talk about that. I, I think you're mentioning how you almost hear Aaron's fingers sometimes on the mm-hmm. on the bass, and I'm obviously <laughs> not a musician or, or an artist. So to me, putting this podcast together is really the only way for me to kind of immortalize 
you know, my love of an album and, and to do my best to try to encapsulate and capture that yeah. myself. It's not anywhere near what you have with your band and, and the memories you have creating it. But to me, this is my way of kind of trying to do that and have my connection to this album be somewhat yeah. permanent. And to have you be a part of that uh, means a lot to me. Yes, so once special. again, thank you so much. Well, thank, yeah. you, thank you both very much. And um, I can't, I do not envy you the task of uh, editing this. But um, I always do this to myself, but <laughs> we'll work it but out. Yeah, I look forward to knowing that it will exist in the world. Well, all right. Until next time, everyone, go listen to a great album. Peace. If you're enjoying listening to Album Divers, you can support our podcast by subscribing, reviewing, and sharing it with someone else that appreciates great music. Follow and connect with us on Facebook and Instagram at Album Divers. We'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback about our take on an album that you already loved or had never heard before. Do you have an album you want us to dive into? Email us at albumdiverspodcast at gmail.com and we'll consider adding it to our queue for a future episode. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you never stop discovering music that moves you to dive deeper. Until next time.